you are actually the first guest that I have who demanded to have a spot in the show. You actually contacted me and said, <laughs> I have listened to the other episodes and I was actually thinking, can I join the show and talk to you? And it's part of the policy that I want to use that I don't want to have just, you know, the regular people who do podcasts on a regular basis. And if you check right now, iTunes or Spotify for Bitcoin related podcasts, you're going to see how you have a dozen people who are part of every show available. And I, I will try to avoid that purposely, just to give floor to many more voices and opinions to share whatever insights that they might have. Sure. I think um, fresh perspectives are always nice. And that's the was one of the takeaways from, from listening to the first season. You, know, you had a few people that I'm unfriendly with on there and uh, you got into some interesting topics, some roads less traveled. And, um, and that's nice. I mean, I suppose when there's not so much of a heterogeneity of, of you know, the guests, the clientele, the, you know, then you might start to see the same topics coming up and, up and, uh, and again. And I think that's one thing that's really important to avoid in, in this quite small and young community that we've got of, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoiners, is not to turn into a kind of self-referential echo chamber. Yeah, and when I had one of the interviews, and I'm not going to disclose all the information, but at the end of it, I was told that there wasn't really anything new that I got from it, as in the topics had been discussed in previous interviews, and I had no idea. I, I don't really have time to listen to every other interview that the guests have done just to make sure that I don't ask the same questions or I don't get the same answers and ask for something new. I'm actually hoping uh, that these interactions are spontaneous and they, they pretty much provide a snapshot of our thought process. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like to edit interviews. I don't cut parts where maybe we err or we say something wrong because part of a conversation is to find a common ground and maybe identify something that we collectively agree as being true or being a good version of the truth. Sure. Or maybe we don't agree about something, but then that's also fine. I mean, I don't think anyone's going to have enough time to listen to all of the podcasts. The number of podcasts is increasing and expanding faster than the universe at the moment. Yeah, it's a big trend right now. Everybody is doing a podcast for various reasons. The, the, I think they have reached their peak in terms of popularity. And some people have this theory that inventions such as the AirPods, like mm -hmm. earphones, which are wireless and are very expensive, have enabled people to be much more free and listen on the go while they are commuting, while they are traveling. And maybe it's useful to get new information while you just stare or glance outside the window and see some landscapes and get some new ideas. But now let's stop, let's stop being so meta by breaking the fourth <laughs> wall about podcasts and do an actual podcast where we discuss a topic. Sounds good. So I know that this is generic, but I usually discuss this with people. So how did you first get into Bitcoin and what was the reason behind your decision to 
put so much time and energy into this invention? Sure. Well, um, I, I guess there's <clears throat> most people usually have kind of a couple of moments. You know, there's usually the kind of first introduction, and then there's the kind of dawning realization of uh, the significance of what's going on. So my first uh, encounter was, um, well, previously, I um, spent a decade or so running an experimental arts organization. You could almost say I was trying to make a decentralized arts organization, but I didn't have the tools or the, or the foresight to, to execute completely on that. So anyway, I was touring uh, with some, some friends uh, around the uh, west coast of the United States. We were in San Francisco, and uh, one of the musicians I was touring with had a buddy in Santa Clara in Silicon Valley. So he said, let's go visit my friend. We went over there and uh, he was interning at Intel. And if you intern at Intel, then the stationary cupboard is full of computer components and, and whatever you, whatever you want. So we got there, we start talking and uh, hanging out and he opens his, his closet in his small apartment and says, check this out. I'm doing this thing called mining Bitcoin. So he had like a GPU, a rack of, of GPUs. Uh, crunching away. This was summer 2012. And uh, that was the, f- the first I heard of it. And, uh, you know, I was fascinated by this idea. I've always been interested in, in technologies and, and um, you know, weird and wonderful uh, inventions. And uh, in the same trip, it was kind of a tour and a, and a voyage and a, and a travel. So I spent a lot of time um, just moving from place to place, roads less traveled, you could say. I actually took the Amtrak, the, the very slow and unwieldy train network in the States, uh, coast to coast from uh, San Francisco to Washington, D.C., going through um, Denver, Chicago, and uh, Philadelphia. And that train, is, it's very slow. So this is a lot of time on the train. Would have been nice to have some podcasts back then. Um, so lots of time to think after this, this encounter. Um, and, you know, when I got home, when I got back to Europe a few months later, I started looking a little bit more seriously into what was going on with this Bitcoin thing. Now, at that time, you know, mid-2012, mid there was not really that much. I wasn't a computer scientist or a cryptographer, so uh, looking at the detailed technical discussions were re- really beyond me. Um, and everything else was, it was like um, Mt. Gox and Bitcoin and BitInstant, things like that. Um, things which have later collapsed and, and turned out to be kind of quite unsavory or a bit shady or a bit scammy or however you want to uh, frame that. And so I just uh, started observing, just continued observing, um, thinking about this thing, um, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, some kind of new digital money that some anonymous person or people created and put out there. And it just sounded like a cool technology experiment, cool science experiment. And it was, wasn't really until... The big run-up in 2013-14 and then the subsequent kind of goxing, the crash and all of that. You know, people kind of said Bitcoin was dead after the Mt. Gox collapse. Um, But then when you started to look at the phenomenology of the network of the, you know, it's spitting out blocks, transactions are getting confirmed, people are moving value around. I started to get more and more interested seeing that this thing was actually a resilient network, a resilient piece of technology. Um, and then I started to see some more of the, of the potential of it. And since then, I've just been uh, going down the rabbit hole. I'm sure that's a, 
very common theme with everybody that uh, you know you peel away the layers of complexity the um you could call it like the the technology stack or the ontological stack you know from the social and the political to the monetary to the um you know protocol and the data architectures and all the rest of it yeah it's always like that i mean the story is never the same about how people discover and come across this invention but it's always like i had that one month when i became obsessed with it and i read everything that i could about bitcoin and then i started to make up and maybe create connections in my mind and try to relate something which i have just discovered with something that i want to accomplish and it's fascinating how people coming from so many different backgrounds can actually find usefulness and purpose in a decentralized currency that is not by any means controlled by any nation state and is completely mm. uncensorable and it cannot be taken away which that's a very complicated word to pronounce but is unconfiscatable Mm-hmm. It's actually, actually a linguistic effort to say unconfiscatable. <laughs> yeah, I also think that you know because Bitcoin is this kind of ensemble of, of technologies and emergent phenomena and, and properties from this network, from this you know protocol, and then the the, the monetary asset that's issued on top of it. Um, you can kind of think of Bitcoin as a, like a Rorschach test. You know, people see different things in it depending on the lens that they, that they view it with. And that's, I think, why you see so many people struggling to communicate with each other, talking past each other online, in person, um, that we, you know, we're humans. We, we're kind of pattern-recognizing creatures. We need to reduce things down to, to, to squash them in our heads and, and make sense of them. And so um, the, the little kind of stories and narratives that we tell ourselves may be quite different from the, the ones that other people tell them. And, you know, of course, we all have different lives and different um, ways of being, different ideologies, different philosophies and different life experiences. So everything is, is, is uh, you know, squashed into uh, what you think or what one thinks Bitcoin is or Bitcoin does or Bitcoin can be. Sure. But generally, I like to assume, and I like it when it's not the case, but I like to assume that getting into Bitcoin is preceded by some kind of ideological mindset, which has to do much more with libertarianism or the idea of sovereignty and personal freedom. Mm-hmm. And I don't individuality. Think, yes. I don't think people who like the idea of state intervention or welfare will like anything that is not controlled by the government. I guess um, it depends at what stage of the Bitcoin life cycle you encounter it. I mean, if you found it in 2010, you could probably be a government official and think, well, this is a science experiment. I can watch this. But you may not want to uh, contribute to the network or transact with it or help to improve the, the, the ecosystem around it necessarily. And um, just getting back to one of your last points when you said that you know people find this thing and they and it's often uh, the potential is seen in it 
uh, as a function of the life experiences or the, or the philosophy of the person. I've always been quite individualistic, I suppose. Um, another interesting thing in, in my, um, my background is that, uh, that that may have kind of let me afforded a, 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 a special insight into it is that my family's uh, from Iraq, this uh, small country in the Middle East, which I'm sure everyone's heard of by now. Uh, lots of uh, bombs got dropped there in the last hundred years or so. And um, had a succession of quite unsavory characters in charge of that territory. Um, it's kind of a melange of, of tribes and people squashed together that, that don't necessarily get along. And, uh, and um, you know, lots of resources there, lots of, you know, in, in, in inherent riches. Um, and so we had this situation where uh, the country was very wealthy, quite secular, very educated. Um, one of the better places to be in the Middle East in the middle of the last century, 50s, 60s, 70s, you could say. And uh, things went very, very sharply downhill. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, myself was extremely lucky that my, my parents were able to, to exit at, um, at a, a time before the decline had really taken shape. They, they left in 79, which is just before the war with Iran started. That was a 10-year war with huge human cost, and, and that kind of laid the kind of foundations for the, um, the United Nations uh, sanctions and then the UN food program and then the US adventures and, and, and so on. So one of the things that, that happens when a country gets you know, taken over by, by a strong man or by a dictator, and uh, you may know something about this from, from your own experiences in, in, in Romania, uh, is that uh, freedom is, is a, you know, a train that leaves the station. So the freedom of speech, the freedom, freedom to transact uh, as you wish, the freedom to old assets. And so um, the fortunes of my family changed very gravely from one moment to the next. You know, one moment, you know, it's, I've got two sides of the family and they're actually very different. One side was uh, Shia and one side was Sunni, which is unthinkable now, but it was not a problem at all, not a big deal um, back in those days. And uh, one side was just, you know, like you could say, a middle-class family, civil servants sort of thing. And the other side was, was quite in the upper echelons of society. Um, my grandfather was a, was a brigadier general in the Iraqi army, and there were several generations of high-ranking military officers. And um, so when Saddam and the Ba'ath Party came into their ascendancy, um, you know, if you're a dictator, kind of put your yourself in the, in, the, in the shoes of a dictator, you're going to get rid of people that you perceive to be a threat. And so my grandfather was one of those people that was perceived to be a threat. And so he had uh, pretty much everything taken away from him, except his life. Um, but they did almost take that as well. And so when you have this kind of, you know, Genesis story or this background story um, of uh, you know, an idyllic uh, life, which is how my mother described her childhood, and it turns into, it just falls apart kind of overnight. Uh, you know, land was confiscated, a house was raided by a secret police, um, assets taken. Uh, as people tried to leave uh, the country, you know, at airports, you would have your gold taken away from you, you'd have your dollars taken away from you, 
and there'd be bandits patrolling the desert at the border between Iraq and Jordan. And so um, I guess that is something that I've been carrying around for a lot of my life, um, this idea that the state can go bad and that individuals have very little recourse or um, access to, to, to tools to mitigate those kinds of um, overreaches of the state. Yeah, I, I guess I have similar stories from Romania. And I'll be telling the story of my parents who got married, maybe until the day I die, and how mm-hmm. they raised enough money to buy a new car, but then the revolution came, and it was followed by hyperinflation. And mm. this led to the fact that they spent their wedding gift money on a new couch, Oh, and that—that's something that's going to follow me at least. It, it will be in my mind forever in terms of mm-hmm. realizing what kind of currency I want to hold. As people who are working for the secret services and had access to financial services outside the country, actually exchanged their money for dollars before the inflation came, and overnight they became millionaires and started buying land and assets and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. And also, my grand-grandparents had their small businesses confiscated by the communists as oh. Romania was on the side of Germany for the first half of the Second World War. And um. in 1944, we, we actually switched to the Allies overnight. Mm-hmm. And During the peace conference and during that famous meeting at Yalta between Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill, they decided that Romania would become a part of USSR side of influence on Mm -hmm. the eastern side of the Iron Curtain. And there was nothing that the Allies would actually do to protest against it. So we had a very small amount of time, like a couple of decades, in which we had a flowering and a flourishing, that's the word, flourishing, not flowering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We had a flourishing bourgeoisie and a quick industrialization in terms of bringing technologies and trying to modernize the country. And for a couple of decades, actually, between the two world wars, Bucharest, which is the capital of Romania, used to be called a small Paris because oh. they, they brought so many cultural influences from Paris. Everybody was speaking French. I mean, everybody who was going to school and was at least mm-hmm. educated at the basic level was speaking French and reading French magazines and newspapers. And they brought some parts of the French architecture. We have the mm-hmm. Arch of Triumph in miniature oh. in Bucharest. And also, if you look at the main administrative buildings, you'll see many influences in the columns and the style of the buildings. So mm-hmm. I tell you that they actually took inspiration from Paris, just like the University of Bucharest, which I attended, and it's a copy of the Sorbonne from Paris. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it's interesting how they took these ideas. Mm-hmm. But the main point is that after all these maybe Western ideas which started coming into these lands, 
it all went to the communists who came and they confiscated all private property. And everybody who was a business owner, not only that they had their goods and money confiscated, but they were not allowed to become a part of the new establishment. Their mm. children could not attend university if they wanted. It, it was, what's the translation? Like It's like an ostracization or something like that. Yeah. Kind of a, uh, uh, you're kind of ejected from society. It, it was a figure of speech. It was in Romanian, it's meaning healthy roots. So if you were from the kind of family which was poor and working class, you had greater chances to actually become a minister and go to university. Whereas if your parents were small entrepreneurs before the communists came, you were ostracized and had no chances to actually accomplish anything. I suppose, you know, if you're looking in the kind of communist paradigm, then this is kind of a, you're trying to, suppose, in some ways, invert class structure to make everyone equal, because I guess that's kind of one of the ways that uh, communism functions, right? It doesn't really um, uh, have this kind of tiered class system that you might find in a, in a free market society or a traditionalistic society. Speaking of hyperinflation, I just looked up the long-term chart of the Iraqi dinar. It's quite entertaining. So when my family first came to the UK, it was two Iraqi dinars for one pound. And obviously the pound back then was much stronger than it is now. And um, I think, you know, my father was, he's a, he's a, he was a doctor, but he was by no means wealthy. Um, but his, uh, his and my mother's family, who came over with them at the time of the, um, at the time that the, of their honeymoon, which is actually happening you know, when they left, um, they were just shopping in Harrods because it was cheap to them. Everything was just, just cheap. Their money was good, and it was cheap. If you look at the long-term chart now, you are talking about a um, thousand dinars to the pound. But it's not quite Venezuela territory, but, um, you know, you were not rewarded for hodling your Iraqi dinars. Oh, definitely not. And right now, one of the dilemmas that you might have as a Romanian is, are you supposed to hold your money in your bank account and get that 2%? Or is that mm -hmm. actually less than the inflation rate? So you're actually losing money even though you actually think that you're making something? Mm. Uh, is, um, so you have, the, is it the LEV, the Romanian currency? LEV, yes. Low. And is it, because um, I know you, uh, Romania is now inside the European Union, but you're not inside the Eurozone. So some countries like Denmark that have a similar arrangement, they, they have a soft peg of the currency to the Euro. Is that the case in Romania or not? No. I don't okay. think so. Well, as far as I know, we don't. Mm -hmm. And there is actually mm -hmm. a plan to switch to Euro at some point. Mm -hmm. But as time passes and we had this wave of populism in 2016, and the more we got into it, the farther we moved from the criteria that we had to fulfill before adhering to the European Union. So right That's now, if we were to 
be a country like Serbia, for example, which is not part of the European Union, and try to become member states, we would not be accepted. Because in these 10 years, since we... Actually, it's almost 12. In June, it will be 12 years since we became members of the European Union. But in, in this time, we actually became less democratic. And there was this further move towards becoming, how should I put it? Like the government tried to take over the judiciary. Oh, I see. So like a kind of concentration of power or kind of increase of authoritarianism yeah, or something like that. separation of powers is not as mm -hmm. functional as it was 10 years ago or 12 years ago, but it's much more functional than it was in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Or the Ceausescu or the, the end of the Ceausescu era. Yeah, we had the first years of democracy, to call it so, but mm -hmm. it's hard to move away from this kind of oppressive regime as mm -hmm. most people don't even understand what freedom is and what it means. And they will just ask you, okay, before this, we never had any real elections. So what is the impact of me going to vote? Why would I even care? Why should I vote for that one and not this one? And usually they just like to preserve the status quo as opposed to changing something. As in the minds of the regular people, it's much easier to observe what you already have and preserve it, then actually take a plunge into the unknown and try something else. So that's why totally I think we had many more governments of the left and our left mm -hmm. is culturally and pretty much even in terms of human resources and uh, ideas rooted in the Communist Party which was totalitarian. So mm -hmm. I, I suppose we got sidetracked by this whole political <laughs> discussion, but it makes sense in the context mm -hmm. of explaining why we got into Bitcoin and why mm -hmm. it makes so much sense for us to demand for autonomy and self-empowerment. I think that's the expression yeah. I'm looking for. Well, I think for. the two things that are in common between, you know, like say Iraq before the 80s and, and, and Romania up until you know, whenever it was uh, 15 or 20 years ago, is that the state was this kind of monolithic entity that had its kind of influence or tentacles or or uh, or edicts kind of uh, infusing all aspects of, of life. And people had very little um, freedom or, or really even any notion of what freedom is, as, as you said. We had the same thing in Iraq uh, as well. So the thing with... Uh, you know, a long-lived regime is people don't really know what comes after it. People don't really know what to do with themselves. So when uh, Saddam eventually uh, was uh, removed, um, there was a gigantic power vacuum. And, uh, you know, that's kind of inevitable, I suppose. But um, it doesn't always uh, end, end very well. And so that's, I guess, what we've seen in, more recently in Iraq with, uh, you know, things like ISIS and and a very, you know, mixed bag of, of uh, kind of, tribal clan leaders and um, foreign stooges and things like that popping up. But anyway, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's jump on to something else. Sure. So we determined why both of us have gotten into Bitcoin. And I think this process took us longer than we expected, but it's actually nice that we exchange cultural backgrounds and information. Sure. 
So what is it that you do in this field? As you said that you're not a cryptographer and you're mm-hmm. not a computer scientist. Or sure, maybe, well, I am. But well, I, I don't really know what I am anymore. <laughs> the first picture I saw of you contained in the background a big mining rig with gigabyte video cards being used to mine something. I'm not sure what. Sure. Yeah. So that, that image of you actually made me think of somebody who is technical and likes to get into these geeky activities. Well, you can be technical without being a computer card-carrying computer scientist, I suppose. So let's, you know, r- rewind the, the tape a little bit more. So before um, my uh, decade uh, with experimental music, I was a research scientist. So my background was kind of between chemistry, physics, and astronomy. Um, and, uh, you know, I spent a decade or so in, in universities uh, doing, doing research, teaching, managing research programs, commercializing research, um, and uh, working in uh, spin-outs and startups and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's not really that I'm not technical in a way. You know, I was doing ultra-fast uh, photophysics and, you know, astrochemistry and uh, Photophysics of DNA damage and all kinds of stuff like that, um, but it's not really computer science. So, um, but as time goes on, you know, you pick up some skills if you if you're motivated and you're not not afraid to get your hands dirty, so to speak. So, I picked up some some uh, you know experience coding, some experience you know, scripting, moved more towards open source software. I do a little bit of mining, yeah, mainly for R and D purposes. Just I wanted to learn how this thing works. I thought there were some interesting research projects in there. Um, you know, I run a few nodes here and there, again, just to see how various um, aspects of, of technologies work. Um, but yes, I'm not a, a computer scientist uh, per se. So what I'm doing uh, these days, um, you know, as, as the time goes on and you fall deeper and deeper down these rabbit holes, um, I guess there's a natural instinct to want to, to learn more, to know more about what this crazy thing called Bitcoin is. And um, so I've just spent, you know, the last few years trying to, to peel back the curtain, understand as much as I can of all the different kind of facets of, of, of what's going on here. So from, you know, finance, I went back to university. Yes, I, I spent some time in a business school to try and pick up some, some, some finance to, to see if I could relate that, you know, finance and economics to, to what's going on. I... Um, I um, yeah, I've been spent in the last year or so. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand how consensus mechanisms and distributed systems work. Because um, you know, when when all is said and done, uh, a network like Bitcoin is a bunch of computers talking to each other, passing messages to each other. It just happens that the messages uh, are, are money, or you know, have have, have some kind of pseudo monetary uh, value, or uh, you know, something like that. And so uh, what I'm doing is I'm, you know, I sort of started and I'm bootstrapping this independent research organization called Parallel Industries, um, which has been going for a few years now. And I'm just conducting various investigations and and trying to move various initiatives forwards. So um, there's a few different projects I'm I'm juggling at the moment. Um, I'll just say something very briefly about them and then we'll see where we we go. So I'm... one of the interesting things that, that's been happening recently, or let's say in the last couple of years, is um, you know, these networks have started to, to fork. Chains have been splitting. Factions have been appearing. Uh, net- networks have been fragmenting. 
And so I, um, I, I started trying to study these, you know, fragmentations of both the code bases and the networks uh, from a, you know, with a maybe a slightly different perspective to, to how you might approach it um, if you were coming from a, you know, pure computer science perspective. And so I called that project Forkonomy uh, by analogy with astronomy because, well, what's astronomy? Astronomy is the study of faraway objects that you can't necessarily observe directly and completely. So you have some information coming from them. You have the light traveling from, from the star. Um, you have um, experiments you can do on the ground, which kind of simulate, model. And you have your hypothesis or your theories or your, you know, um, mathematical approaches and you know, how um, science and, and, you know, organized thought goes. You're basically trying to triangulate these three things. So that's the kind of analytical lens I've been using with that project and trying to, to use those various approaches to make some reasoned judgments or some speculations as to the probable fates of some of these networks. So one of the interesting analogies you can make between something like Bitcoin and something like a star, like the sun, is um, they're both, you could think of them both as thermodynamic systems. So what's the star? A star is a big ball of energy. Nuclear fusion is going on. Hydrogen becomes helium and, and so on. Um, and what's Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is, um, well, in an energetic sense or a thermodynamic sense, uh, the mining you can think of as the energy, the work being put into the system, the, the enthalpy, and um, the entropy is kind of the time that passes and uh, forks. And so if you use that kind of very coarse grain model, then, you know, just as a star, you know, we don't know, I mean, we, uh, it's never certain the fate of a star. It does depend on many variables, but there's this stellar taxonomy called the Bertsprung-Russell diagram, which, which is very highly successful at predicting the future fates of stars, depending on their luminosity and their, um, their, their, their brightness and their, their mass, their, their size. And so if you know those two things, you can find roughly where this star is going to end up by comparing it with the kind of passage of other stars over the course of their lifetimes as the fuel kind of burns out and uh, the star either collapses in on itself, becomes a, a white dwarf, neutron, uh, sorry, neutron star or a black hole, or um, it kind of, uh, the fire goes out and it lacks the economic, the, the gravity, the, the, the um, accretive force to, to keep its mass. It just kind of loses everything and becomes cold rock. And so uh, I tried to draw this parallel with um, Bitcoin and Bitcoin-like networks. Now, Bitcoin is the oldest of all the, you know, proof of work or, you know, even of all the cryptocurrencies, really. And so it's very hard to um, peer further into the future of the life cycle of a, of a proof-of-work network um, than, than Bitcoin. Now, um, I suppose most of the people that will listen to this uh, have at least some idea of how the, um, what we call the halving um, regime of the uh, subsidy paid to the miners, the bribe that's paid to the, to the participants who put energy in to secure the network, how that halves in Bitcoin terms every four or so years. And so as that's going down further and further, it's kind of a you know, smaller piece of the pie is there to kind of 
reward the miners for securing the network against against adversaries. And so you can kind of think of this like the stars as they kind of go through their life cycles and, and they lose their fuel. They lose this the fire that's burning inside them. And so the question really, uh, you know, the, the, the reason the analogy came up is, you know, is related to the question of what happens to, to Bitcoin? Does it um, maintain its... Um, the incentive, the necessary incentive to the miners to defend the network as the fee, as the mining subsidy falls, or does it lose that kind of economic gravity and become a, a white dwarf or become a, a failed project? And um, the, the kind of inspiration to, to go down that road was, was finding a, a less well-known network, which has now become a bit better known because of lots of bad things that have happened to it in the last uh, um, nine months since I started looking which is called Bitcoin Private. You've probably heard of this, Vlad, I guess. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. wasn't it some kind of work and a combination between, I think it was Z Classic and... And Bitcoin. Some, uh, so some yeah. miners forked up from Bitcoin to create this? Well, it was actually a bit different. The, the genealogy of this thing, it's got like a family tree, you could say. So um, uh, Bitcoin... Um, was a, a lot of the code base of Bitcoin was adopted into Zcash and they added the zero knowledge proofs and, and you know, some additional cryptography to, to have shielded transactions and so on. And the, a group of people disliked the founder's reward or the developer tax inside Zcash. So they forked that code, ba uh, code base fork. Yeah, not a ledger fork. This is a fork of the, of the code, not a fork of the, the balances of the ledger of the blockchain. Um, and they created Z Classic. And then some other people decided they wanted a dev tax, so they forked that again, made a new network with a fresh chain called uh, Zencash, which is now Horizon. But from Z Classic, uh, after this Zencash fork, it kind of kind of looked like it had died to death. The fork didn't go well. There was lots of attacks. There was lots of um, hostility. And um, so that network was kind of left for dead. And then about... December, November, December 2017, the height of the mania, you could say. Um, the original creator of Z Classic came back and said, hey, we're going to do this thing where we combine Z Classic and Bitcoin, the UTXO sets of both ledgers, and we're going to call it Bitcoin Private. So this is the first time, to my knowledge, that this operation, which you could call a, a merge fork or you know, fork merge or whatever you want to call it, this kind of synthesis of these two UTXO sets was, was conducted. And the interesting thing here, well, what I saw in, in it that was interesting was Z Classic was a very young network, so it only had three and a half or four million of the 21 million coins issued. Uh, Bitcoin was a, you know, you could say it's a, was a relatively mature network, and it had about 16, 16 and a half, 16 or so million coins issued at that time. And so if you put those two together, what you end up with is a network that's already issued over 20 million of its 21 million coins. What that means is there's not much left to give to the miners. You know, there's not much subsidy there. There's not much stellar fuel for this, you know, thermodynamic engine. And so um, because the um, subsidy was quite low, you, um, you had a fiat token price that was also very low. There's very little incentive for the miners to defend the network. And this thing was just a sitting duck, you know, for, in terms of majority attacks, 51% attacks and, and things like that. Um, when I wrote the paper, the nominal price... Oh, the other thing to say is that it wasn't the major uh, coin. It wasn't the most valuable network. 
with the Equihash mining algorithm, which means that there's already lots of hash rate out there, GPUs and, and ASICs and, and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, just one mining pool on, on Equihash, a Zcash, Zcash mining pool, could have um, you know, easily done a large-scale attack, reopened blocks, double spent on exchanges and all the rest of it. So at the time I wrote the paper, the 51% attack, I mean, when you talk about the cost of it, it's, it's a bit of a misnomer. A lot of people have seen this website called crypto51.app, which kind of lists some headline figures of how much it might cost to, to attack a network. But that doesn't really take into account the fact that the, there's a market for hash rate, like a market for coins. And if you buy lots of hash rate, the price of that hash rate goes up. But you can use it to make some kind of relative judgment. So at that point, it was on the order of a few hundred dollars an hour to, to attack it, maybe maybe a thousand per hour. Now it's you know it's way under a hundred dollars an hour. So this thing is um, it's not thermodynamically secure. There's there's no reason you would use that to, to store your wealth or as a as a transactional medium. So by analogy with this kind of stellar um, you know notion, uh, I was calling Bitcoin private a white dwarf chain. This thing is kind of it's wrecked. It's dead. Um, nobody's going to use this thing. It's too easy to attack it. Um, it's too uh, there's, there's nothing there. There's no incentive. The, they they fill the ledger with, with Bitcoin UTXOs to kind of use the Bitcoin name, maybe for a bit of marketing or kind of quick uh, quick flip or, or something like that. Indeed, the token did uh, the coin did a hundred x pump in about a month or six weeks from the announcement of the of the fork merge until um, the actual operation in USD terms. So. Um, what I, is the most interesting thing for me really was that if you kind of, so Bitcoin started off with 50 Bitcoins per block as the mining reward and 10 minutes block, 10 minute blocks. Z Classic had 12.5 Z Classic per block on two and a half minute blocks. So they're just kind of constant scaled factors of each other. So you can plot them on the same scaling diagram. And indeed I did that. And when I did it, I realized that now, Bitcoin private is basically a, a halving ahead of Bitcoin. And so that's a new data point. It's kind of like we, we Frankenstein monstered uh, an elderly blockchain, which we didn't have before. We didn't have that data point before. So we, um, it's kind of a look into a possible future of Bitcoin. I mean, admittedly, it is the very worst case scenario for Bitcoin. The, you know, people talk now about reducing the block size and they're worried about a fee market. People want... Uh, you know, transaction fees uh, to develop and to, 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 to be significant to provide the incentives uh, for miners when the block subsidy decreases a lot. And um, I suppose Bitcoin private might be a little kind of um, signifier of what happens if, if that transaction fee market doesn't develop and if the, the per coin fiat price is very low. All of Bitcoin's potential problems with the mining subsidy um, going down, uh, they, they disappear if Bitcoin's price keeps going up because then the you know, miners pay their bills for electricity and for, for their you know, silicon chips and so on in fiat currency, in, in, you know, in uh, uh, old money. So if uh, Bitcoin is a million dollars a coin, then even if the mining subsidy is very small, that will probably be sufficient and the transaction fees will probably plug the gap. But if Bitcoin's only $5 a coin, you're going to have to pay so much in transaction fees to sufficiently incentivize the miners to keep the network secure 
um, then it's probably not going to be a worthwhile proposition for anyone. So really, that's what the, the for economy thing was. I just kind of sort of glanced into a possible future of Bitcoin and, uh, and, and, and dived down that rabbit hole. Now, since uh, I did that, that work, um, uh, Nick Carter and the uh, team, and Antoine Lacalvez and the team at Coinmetrics did some absolutely amazing work uh, spinning up some, some Bitcoin private nodes and looking at the UTXO distribution around the time of the, the fork merge operation. Now, indeed, I did the same thing. So as you said in my picture, there's a bunch of nodes and, and, uh, and stuff running in the background. I think one of those is actually a Bitcoin private node that's running. And um, something very odd goes on around the time of the fork merge as they insert all of these UTXOs into the, into the new network's um, uh, blockchain. Uh, the, the size of the chain is, is just absolutely enormous. So my you know, very fast computer with 32 gigs of RAM and graphics cards and all this kind of stuff was continually crapping out, trying to, to pass all this data so I could put it into some, some uh, analytics suites that I use. Um, and so I was looking mainly to find a, a, a potential heuristic for network health from the interblock time, for the time between blocks, if, you know, to see if kind of smooth interblock time would, would be a, a marker for a healthy network. And if um, the interblock time is all over the place, it's kind of a proxy for hash rate variations for, for kind of difficulty swings, see if there was a possible heuristic there. Now, they went a step or two further, and they were looking at the UTXOs themselves, and that's where they saw this uh, gigantic pre-mine or fork pre-mine or whatever you want to call it, this hidden inflation that was put into the shielded pool of approximately 2 million coins at the time of the, of the fork merge. So... Even though Bitcoin Private was already extremely wrecked, <laughs> thanks to thanks to Coinmetrics and their sleuthing, it, it it got a whole lot worse. So, in a nutshell, your case is presenting a situation where the solution to provide greater incentives for miners was to merge two coins and have their protocols developed into one. And you are projecting this as a future solution that may or may not be used for Bitcoin as the incentives to carry on with the mining operations decrease? Um, maybe not, not quite. Um, so I would say that this kind of fork merge thing, other people are going to try this for sure because, you know, we live in this infinite universe and people are already gonna, always going to try crazy things. Um, and more the opposite, really. Like, I, I think this, this operation was a disaster because the outstanding supply of the, of, the, of the coin, of the ledger, is the incentive to keep the network secure. So when you run out of that uh, incentive, um, you're going to have to find some other way of doing it. Like, Bitcoin Private couldn't sustain high token price, so the, the incentive wasn't there. And then they start to explore all sorts of other uh, mitigations or, or you know, um, potential solutions, inverted commas. One of them was, let's steal Satoshi's coins. Um, and, you know, this thing was marketed as Satoshi's vision. You know, they did that thing. So I don't know if you can say, we've got Satoshi's vision and we're going to steal Satoshi's coins. That doesn't quite sound um, very uh, consistent to me. Um, there's all, all these other solutions of, of minority networks, of networks that aren't the, the most powerful one on, on their on the hashing algorithm, you know, you can do checkpointing, you can dump your, your latest block hash into the Bitcoin blockchain, you can do merge mining where, you know, one cycle on a major network counts for one cycle on yours. And if somebody finds a block on your, 
on the, on the mage network, they get a block on yours. Um, you can change the chain selection rule. So you can change how the network determines which is the canonical chain, which is the most, you know, the, the true history of the ledger. Um, and a lot of these things have been tried already on minority networks. So um, I kind of took a little bit of a, a trip down uh, uh, Shitcoin Safari, looking at lots of minority networks to see uh, you know, that had been attacked or that had been vulnerable of the, of, from these attacks to kind of see what they did. And because, you know, Bitcoin has not been 51% attacked that we know of. Oh, and, um, you know, there may be a reorg here and there, um, but that's more just a case of the way that mining works. You know, miners are always looking for blocks. There is no kind of single solution that's valid to finding a block. You just have to find a, a hash which is sufficiently low that it fits under the difficulty requirements. So it's totally uh, within the normal operation of the network that somebody can, two sets of mining pools or, or, or mining participants can find a valid block. And then it's just a race to propagate those across the network and see which one, uh, which one holds. But um, no, I wouldn't say that there's any good design lessons in Bitcoin private. Quite, quite the opposite. It's kind of like a menu of what not to do if you want to um, not have your network collapse and fall apart. Well, I, I guess there are lots of people who look at altcoins and forks of Bitcoin mm-hmm. and they say that they should not exist and they are ir- irrelevant and they are just a waste of time and money. But actually, they are very interesting in terms of providing data or worst case scenarios. And we can see what's going to happen with big blocks, what's going to happen if you merge two protocols into one if you mess with the incentives and create free mines, you get to see on a practical level what attracts people, what causes the market dynamics to shift and where it all goes wrong one way or another. Mm -hmm. So from, from this point of view, I guess the forks are very educational, even though they are a bad investment for anyone. Oh, yes, I absolutely agree with you. And that's one really important thing to separate out here is that, you know, as a researcher or as a kind of investigator or a sleuth or a nerd, you might be interested in something as an experiment, something as a, you know, it's a mutated strain or something like that. But that doesn't mean you want to put your money in it. That's that's all your, you know, your life savings or, you know, something to pass down to your your descendants. I mean, those two things are very different, in in my opinion. Um, and so you really, you know, it's one of the kind of memes or one of the kind of themes in Bitcoin that people are, are saying that Bitcoin trains you to have this long-term mindset, this low-time preference or however you want to call it. And I don't see that in most of the other projects. I see very short-termism kind of growth hacks, you could say, like, you know, quick, quick short pumps and dumps and flips to try and get some, some cheap attention Um and, you know, burn out whatever fuel you've got as quickly as you can to, to get noticed and then um, disappear in a, a wisp of smoke. There's a really interesting saying from, um, I can't remember if it was Jesse Livermore or another, another one of these old storied investors, that in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, it's a weighing machine. Um, and I suppose from that, you can take, uh, take the lesson that short-term sentiment you know, market prices and, and so on aren't necessarily an indicator of the long-term viability of a 
particular technological choice. But I totally agree that all these different forks, they're kind of like different timelines. I mean, I, you might be a bit too young to have seen Back to the Future. I'm not sure. No, but, I've um, seen it. It's okay, a good, classic. Good, good, good. So um, the, that's how I think of these things. So in Back to the Future 2, um, you know, at the end of Back to the Future 1, I think it is, Biff gets the almanac from his future self with all of the results of all of the sports events that are going to happen. And then, you know, he uses that to become the inverted commas luckiest man in history and, you know, amasses a huge amount of wealth. And, and then, you know, part of the second film in that trilogy is in the alternate timeline, the kind of dark side timeline where Biff is, he resembles a lot, you know, Biff resembles a lot, a very well-known, very important person in the United States at the moment. I'm not going to say who it is, but uh, I think it's, it's pretty apparent to, to a lot of people. Um, so he, yeah, he's amassed a lot of wealth. They're living in this kind of dystopian reality or alternate reality, and the film kind of flips between these two timelines. I kind of see these forks as, as, as a similar kind of, you know, set of parallel dimensions or set of parallel timelines. And so it's valuable to have all of these different um, alternate realities that we can explore. Obviously, these things have blockchains. They have open ledgers and networks. We can study them. We can examine them. We can see how um, these things go and the various design choices. It's a bit like the Cambrian explosion in, you know, in uh, Earth's history as well, where the complexity of life on Earth increased and proliferated very rapidly as we moved from sea to, to, to the land. So whereas I may not be particularly wild about terabyte blocks or uh, hidden pre-mines or, um, or even very short block times, or um, unaudited smart contracting virtual machines. I'm all for people doing these experiments. I just wish that people would be a bit more responsible and honest in reminding everybody that these are experiments. I think because, you know, markets are one of the first things that can develop around these, these coins and these tokens before, you know, any kind of real uses and, and, and uh, any kind of real utility or, or kind of real value, you could say long-term value, worth, um, I suppose you're always going to get that speculation. You're always going to get um, people trying to flip uh, you know, an altcoin or, a, or a, another a token or, or something like that to either get more Bitcoin or maybe because they fell in love with their bags and they thought that their thing was going to be the new Bitcoin or, or whatever. Maybe that's a learning process. I mean, it's one of those things that gets very often discussed in Bitcoin circles, I go to a lot of these Bitcoin conferences and so on, um, that, uh, you know, people start with Bitcoin very often, or they did a few years ago, and then they might get seduced by the promise, the promises from another network. And they'll go over there and see how that's going, and, and it's, all very, um, it's all very utopian and idealistic, and the potential is, is, is really there. And then reality gradually kicks in, and then, you know, the kind of perspective of what has been um, not promised per se, it's not always a promise, what has been suggested or intimated and the reality of the situation can be very different. Now, you and I, we're familiar with the space. We, you know, we, we look at this, these things, we're, we're, we're kind of knee-deep in this stuff. Most of the people that uh, are familiar with, have heard of Bitcoin, have heard of cryptocurrencies, they don't know that much about these things. So if some guy in a suit is sitting on a panel at Davos and says that his thing is the is better than Bitcoin and his you know thing is for banks, but it's more decentralized than Bitcoin. 
then uh, people don't necessarily have the you know the, the, the knowledge base to be able to easily refute that. And so, it, I suppose you know we have a leaderless network; it's permissionless. You are going to have these kind of Bengali-esque characters, or you know, might call them charlatans or or whatever, um, that come in and promise, make these magical claims, and and uh, promise promise the earth. Yeah, and to some people, that was the first kind of exposure to any kind of cryptocurrency. If you are looking for make money off of Bitcoin on YouTube back in 2017, mm-hmm. there are very high chances that you ended up discovering BitConnect as sure. that community, which was obviously part of a Ponzi scheme, was the most active and the most enthusiastic. And mm-hmm. the idea that people make a lot of money overnight attracts much more people than actually presenting some kind of brilliant idea that's going to maybe explode in 10 years and produce something of great value. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, um, the other thing to, to bear in mind is that, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have a marketing department, doesn't have a marketing budget. A lot of other projects they do from ICO treasuries, from masternode DAOs and, and, and so on. So, um, in a way, Bitcoiners have this additional kind of responsibility to educate and inform people uh, as to as to the reality of the situation. It wasn't just YouTube. If you cast your mind back, there were banner ads at the top of Coin Market Cap, which is you know maybe not the most ethical website place to get your price data or market data, but it's one of the most popular websites in the whole space. And there were banner adverts taking people straight to BitConnect's website there. So. There's, there's also that, and um, um, it's easy to see how people can be taken in. I mean, before BitConnect, there was one coin, and I'm, sh- I'm sure you probably you may you may remember one coin as well. It didn't get quite as big as BitConnect. It was just a very you know, to anybody familiar with the space, it was just obviously nonsense. It was obviously uh, a pyramid scheme or, or worse. But you know what? Today, this morning, I got a message from a friend. <clears throat> nice guy. Met him uh, traveling in uh, Myanmar a few years ago. English guy. And um, I gave him some Bitcoin uh, a year and a half ago. Um, before the uh, before the run-up. Before the run-up. No, it was, actually it was... He came to stay with me. The price was about $5,000. And then I went to stay with him. And the price was over ten, But I gave it to him at the old price. So I didn't want to, uh, you know, it's horrible with, if your first experience with Bitcoin is somebody gives you Bitcoin and then it loses all of its value immediately. So um, I gave him some Bitcoin and he's been sitting on it. And then he sent me a message the other day saying, oh, I had to change the wallet and this and that. By the way, have you heard of one coin? My friend's father is telling us to invest in it. I didn't even know this thing was still going. I thought they put some people in jail and shut it down, but... Maybe it's still going and we just don't see it because it's not marketed to us. It's not marketed to people that are familiar with, with Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and so on, because they know that we're not going to fall for it. Because this thing is a small you know, world and it's growing, and much as you know, there's quite a few well-known um, people that used to be Bitcoiners that aren't Bitcoiners anymore, they seem to have the same approach, which is um, try to catch people at the turnstiles, catch people as they're coming in. You know, when they don't know anything, they don't know any better. They don't know the difference between a BTC and a BCH and a BSB 
and a BTCP and, and so on. Um, because it is confusing. And, you know, when you know less, um, you, know, you never know uh, less than you do uh, in that moment, you know, when you first arrive. You know almost nothing. And a lot of people don't have a friend to look over their shoulder to kind of warn them or to give them advice. Yeah, I agree with that. But at the same time, I think one coin is something different right now. As I looked it up at some point and it was an ICO. And the one coin of which you know that used to be a Ponzi scheme was, mm -hmm. I think, made in Bulgaria or something. And the uh, doctor, yeah, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, yeah, she was Bulgarian. Well, she was the face of it anyway. So this is a different project then. That's interesting. It is. And I think it's Korean or something. But it might be one of these instances where either they are not aware of what the name stands for or what mm. it's remembered as by people who have been a part of the community for a longer time, or it's one of these situations where the proverb of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me applies. Mm -hmm. as they're basically tongue-in-cheek, and they're shameless in their attempts to scam people. But one coin sounds so great, like one coin. You, you buy one coin. You have bought one coin. We are going to be using one coin to transact between ourselves in the future. Why Bitcoin? Yeah, number, we can have the, one the, coin. It sounds sure, the, the number one coin, the one coin to rule them all. I mean, it, uh, the marketing rights itself. But I mean, either... I've been to Korea. I spoke at the um, Ethereum Classic Summit in, in Seoul uh, last year. And you know, Korea has this, you know, they're very pro-technology. They're very interested in cryptocurrencies and, and things like that as a you know, culture you know, overall. Um, but it still seems far-fetched that they wouldn't have done an English language search, web search and saw that there was this tainted project that, um, you know, had this negative history. <clears throat> and still use the title, unless, as you say, it's kind of a joke. I mean, I don't know if you remember, there was a project called Ponzi Coin. Um, over a year ago, I found that. And they were just saying, hey, we're, we're, we're a Ponzi scheme, but it's honest. A bit like that FOMO 3D corporation game. Kind of said, hey, this is kind of a self-perpetuating thing until it collapses. And that's why it's fun. Yeah, but, but um, I don't... that was in the middle of the ICO bubble. When mm -hmm. everybody was speculate, speculatively putting like $100 in each ICO. Mm -hmm. And they were used to the idea that maybe 9 out of 10 would fail. But that one, one of them which was legit and was generating value, that was the one which was feeding the expectations and actually paying for the other 9 to collapse and maybe enrich a few who are creating the ICO. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like the, the venture capital model, right? Um, you know, early stage entrepreneurial funding kind of works in the same model where uh, people will fund things in a very early stage. There'll be very little chance that this thing will get to a successful exit. But if it does get to a successful exit, you might be looking at, you know, 50 times, 100 times, 200 times, 20 times uh, return on investment. But, of course, the difference between kind of early-stage VC model and the ICO model is the incentives of the ICO model, at least of the 2017 vintage, were just completely upside down. You know, this was – people were shelling out um, – were issuing these tokens 
but nothing, you know, cost nothing to issue them or pretty much nothing. And there's very little in terms of claims or in terms of rights or in terms of things that are really promised beyond, you know, some, some nice graphics in a PDF. That's, that was about it, I guess. Maybe some, maybe a website, maybe some wallet or a little bit of a, you know, smart contract or something like that. Um, and so, I guess, yeah, that was, that's one of my main problems with, with that whole thing. And maybe it takes us on to one of the other projects that I'm working on because I was just editing a, a manuscript I'm preparing and I was just um, going through the bit where I was taking the, the ICO incentive model, at least of 2017, at the task. Yeah, you know, I remember that enthusiastic period of time when somebody would come up with one wild idea And even if it sounded stupid, if they were able to write a white paper and create a website, they would find people who are enthusiastic about it and say, you know, this actually has potential or this can be the future or whatever. They would have big communities on Telegram. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, I think it was just pure speculation and nobody actually yeah. cared about developing the project or advancing with the roadmap. They just mm -hmm. wanted to buy the tokens before the ICO. And on the same day when that project ICO'd and the public had access to buy the tokens on exchanges, they would dump it and maybe maximize their early investment. I guess. Sure. And even, yep. yeah, even the way that, yeah, and even the way the insiders were given tokens at discounts and we could dump them on retail as, as exchanges listed this thing. It reminds me of this... Um, It's a really interesting book and, and, and paper and a talk online by a chap called uh, Nick Gogarty. He's from SolarCoin. And um, the, uh, I can't know what the paper is called right now, but uh, the concept is called Network Capital Theory. So he's trying to look at you know, all kinds of monies as protocol networks, trying to figure out a way that you can um, connect the dots between the different drivers of a price. So if you think about, like, if, lad, we want to make a transaction, say you've got some nice Romanian bread and I would like to, to purchase it at some point in the future, it's very hard for us to agree a price um, until um, the moment of the transaction. There's lots of different factors that might go into that, you know, the exchange rate, the price of flour, the you know, transport costs, and you know, whether uh, the UK will still be in the European Union or not, all that kind of stuff. So he tried to come up with this way that you could um, model the value of assets and the, and the networks that, that facilitate the transaction of those, of those assets. Um, he calls it transactome theory. I don't know if you've heard of you know, the human biome, the genome, the connectome, and so on. Kind of the sum of all possible connections that can be made between the willing economic agents in a monetary network, you could say. So he had this interesting idea that the price kind of is, is constituted of these three um, elements, these three uh, factors. Uh, one is kind of the, um, if, I've, if I've got this right, the network, um, the value from the network, the size of the network, the breadth of the protocol, or the amount of people that will accept your bread as money or you know, as a pseudo-monetary asset or, or whatever. The redemption utility, the, you know, the ease of, uh, the, the value of, kind of cashing in your asset, you could say. I mean, for bread, it would be eating the bread. Or for ether, it could be using it in a smart contract. 
Um, or for Bitcoin, it could be transacting and spending with it. And then the speculative utility, you know, the, whether you um, try to sort of foretell the market and its, you know, perception of, of the value in the, in, the, in the short term. And so what's interesting is you then can have this kind of intertemporal view between past, present, and future. So in the past, we know the price of stuff in the past. We have those records. That's kind of objective. We, kind of, we can look that up. We have records. We, we know what the prices of stuff were. We just spoke about exchange rates of currencies. We can just look it up. We have that data. In the present, it's more difficult. It's more kind of intersubjective. It's a transient um, matter. It depends on the moment and the you know, conditions in the moment. And in the future, it's subjective. Like, you know, if you ask me what the price of Bitcoin is in six months' time, I have no idea. All I can do is is uh, have a guess. And so um, this theory that, that Gogarty and uh, Johnson uh, uh, came up with, with this kind of, uh, there's, a, there's a book as well that Gogarty's written, I can't remember the name of it right now, but the concept is, is called uh, Network Capital Theory, and the transactome kind of uh, concept is really interesting because when you look at, when you apply that back to things like ICOs, they didn't really have much of a, kind of a network beyond the exchanges. I guess that's about it. Um, there was no real use of them because nobody built the products, nobody built the, you know, the thing that they were meant to be building. They were raising the money at the start to, to go off and build the thing. And people are still building these things. The ones that have, have stuck around are still building them. So all you really had was the speculative value, as, as you said. But it was interesting to see this kind of you know, economic model of, of these networks and, and how um, the different aspects of the utility or the, um, the, the value or the components of price might be arrived at depending on, you know, uh, the uh, intertemporal nature of where you are, whether you're looking in the past or the present or the future. Quite interesting. So you told me before this interview that you have this idea about Bitcoin being a time machine and you mm. got me intrigued at that point. And I, I was just waiting for you to start the conversation about it. But uh, I guess it takes <laughs> me to actually inquire about it. Well, we kind of had, we started the conversation already. So the Fulconomy project is, you know, looking into the possible futures of Bitcoin as the, as the mining subsidy attenuates. That's kind of a related concept and this idea of the forks being parallel dimensions. So Bitcoin is kind of like, especially with um, kind of economics of, of Bitcoin, if we strip out the exogenous factors, the external factors like Bitcoin price in dollars or layer or Moroccan dirhams or pounds or whatever, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Um, every block, every nine and a half minutes or 10 minutes, 12.5 Bitcoins are you know, created in a Coinbase transaction that goes to a miner or a mining pool in return for um, their services in defending the network. And the um, issuance, the, the kind of mathematical relationship of the issuance of Bitcoin, the effective inflation rate or however you want to look at it, um, relate, um, versus time, that is known, that is deterministic. And so when you have things like, um, you know, when I, put, when I said I put um, on the halving diagram, the stepping down diagram that you, you often see with, with relation to Bitcoin, and when you put, um, say, Z Classic and Bitcoin and Bitcoin Private on this network, you kind of see that you're kind of looking through the ages of, of the network there. It's kind of like that, you know, what was that? Shakespeare, the three ages of man, the 
Seven Ages of Man? I can't actually remember what it is. I'm not so uh, literarily uh, educated as I am with uh, technical stuff. But um, so because the sort of supply assurance is deterministic and because the way the network works, it's kind of like quite a cold mechanical machine in a way. You know, uh, energy goes in, blocks come out, blocks get appended to the chain, um, the blocks contain transactions, the history of the ledger is updated. Um, by um, looking at these different coins that are in different regimes of the halving, or indeed looking at Bitcoin as it progresses through its life, um, that, that's kind of this idea of Bitcoin being a time machine, that uh, you know, we, can, we, can rewind, we can rewind back and look at Bitcoin's past when it was a, a young upstart, when it was in this inflationary phase, when the effective inflation was very high. And we can kind of, you know, when if you find more anomalies like Bitcoin private, you can kind kind of fast forward a little bit into the future and see what the what the, the futures of, of Bitcoin might be, or the futures of other networks um might be. Um so really that's the that's where that concept um kind of came from. Um it's there's also an interesting philosophical kind of quandary or something to ponder that uh you know, we don't have necessarily just one timeline. Depends if you know, I don't know if you believe in free will or not, or you know these kinds of philosophical considerations. But um, it's not necessarily the case that we only have one timeline and we're kind of mechanically rolling through our lives on on, on rails. You know, as a, as a kind of um, mannequin, you know, being shepherded from one you know station of, of our of our life experience to another. And so. Um, Having these kinds of insights into kind of possible futures, I guess it's like that Gogarty equation. You have the subjective future, the intersubjective presence, and the objective past. So the more kind of data we have with the objective past, the better informed our kind of speculative trajectories of the possible futures um, might be. So let me ask you a more practical question, which mm-hmm. is much more rooted in practical and everyday affairs as i know that you travel a lot and you have been to a lot of countries in the last few years and i'm not sure for how long you have been a bitcoiner but i know that an ideal of bitcoiners is to have their digital cryptographic currency accepted in as many places as possible and ideally to be able to live off your bitcoins everywhere you go So of all the places that you visited, which ones do you think were the friendliest in terms of accepting Bitcoin as a mean of payment? Yeah, really good question. So let me just, um, <clears throat> let me just preface, uh, preface answering the question. Um, you know, maybe we have a little detour on, on, on the traveling before, as we get there. So um, I wasn't really interested at all in traveling when I was younger. I was just a nerd. I was chained to a laboratory desk, operating large lasers, And that was my thing. And then I got to my late 20s. I left the university after a decade or so and uh, realized that I kind of misspent my 20s. I could have spent those, you know, adventuring around the world. And so I kind of went off and did that. Uh, started traveling around Europe a lot with, um, with music, bouncing around from many of the same places where, you know, where we were doing our very niche kind of experimental music uh, at Berlin, Uh, different parts of Holland or the lowland Benelux and lowlands in general, uh, Spain and Portugal, Malta, 
um, you know, west coast of the states, Scandinavian countries, you know, all, all around Europe, really. Not so much to the east, but uh, let's say western, northern, southern Europe. And then as I um, started, started living more and more on the road, it started to become a bit more advantageous to understand really how travel works. You know, it's the same as Bitcoin. If you spend all your time thinking about Bitcoin, you want to know how it works. So I started kind of peeling away the layers of, of how transport works, with the economics of transport, how to hack your way around for, for less and less money. And uh, so there's a thing called travel hacking. Maybe not be as, <clears throat> may not be as much of a thing as it used to be. Um, so before Bitcoin, I was kind of interested in, do you know, like uh, frequent flyer points, hotel points, and all that kind of stuff, hacking my way through those because um, it helped me travel. Um, and as uh, time went on with music, my budget became more and more constrained, and I also wanted to travel further and further. So I had to get more and more creative about how to do that. So England, because um, England's a very kind of free market, capitalistic uh, place, uh, a bit like the States, we have this huge credit culture, credit cards, loans, all this kind of stuff. And there's all kinds of incentives attached to these credit cards, um, like uh, air miles. You know, you might have a British Airways credit card or American Express credit card that gives you points and you can spend those on flights. And if you do it just right, you can get something crazy that you would never be able to afford or you'd be able to go to a place that you could never normally go. Um, so I really, you know, made the most of that. I think I'll hit 80 countries this year that I've visited. And obviously I've visited many places multiple times as well. So I was just in Malta last month. My friends there, we used to, we used to uh, do a lot of experimental music events there. Even though it's this tiny place, there was a little scene for what we did. And my friends asked me, how many times have you been here? And I, I couldn't answer them because I, once it gets to 10 or 12, what's the point in counting? Um, I, I lost count completely. Um, and so traveling that widely, and then, I, you know, as I, you know, as I said, uh, the, the, I started working less and less on music and I started traveling more and more just for the hell of it. So I started traveling wide, more widely, went around uh, places like South America a number of times, Pacific Islands, um, North Africa, um, yeah, parts of Asia, East Asia, um, Australasia, and, and so on. You start to go to and South Asia as well. You start to go to places that might be considered less developed, more closed, um, or, you know, places with simple lives, less uh, material. And um, what, the thing that really fascinated me was going to places like, I don't know, Myanmar or Bolivia or India, is that... Um, if you get off that kind of the international trail, the, you know, what they, what they call the banana pancake trail in, in uh, Southeast Asia, if you get off that kind of lonely planet itinerary, you start to see quite real, quite gritty things. You know, people that have very little, um, you know, very little in the way of, kind of exogenous resources, very little access to capital or material goods or income or, or whatever. Cambodia is a very good example of that as well, where I spent Christmas and New Year. Um, this year, uh, last year, and um, but you, what's amazing is you see that the more, the less resources people have, the more resourceful they are and they can be, the more imaginative they are. And that was really something quite inspiring. But to, just to get back to your point, which was about um, acceptance of, of Bitcoin, um, I'd say most of the places that have uh, been most accepting or that I've been able to transact with it or that I've seen the signs of, 
of transaction going on have been in Europe. Um, Prague, I think uh, it's well known as one of the hotspots, epicenters of, of you know, acceptance, merchant acceptance and commerce, or you know, peer-to-peer uh, transactions. In Prague, there's that amazing place, the Institute of Crypto Anarchy, um, where the Hackers Congress uh, conference is held every October. And uh, they don't accept fiat in that place. It's just cryptocurrency. You know, first it was Bitcoin, now it's Bitcoin and a couple of others. Um, so you don't have a choice. If you want to eat, if you want a beer, that's what you've got to do. You've got to pay with Bitcoin. And that's that's great. Um, and uh, I... I suppose the downside of something like that is the volatility risk. So, you know, if you're taking, if you're accepting Bitcoin as a merchant and Bitcoin's $20,000, and then you put that in your wallet, and then you need to pay your bills in a couple of months' time, and Bitcoin is $6,000, that is a problem, you know, because your bills are probably not in Bitcoin. We don't have these complete circular economies in Bitcoin quite just yet. But, uh, you know, hopefully... This, uh, you know, as these ecosystems build out, it will be easier to have these kind of complete circular economies. I also noticed a lot of acceptance in um, Baltic countries. I've been to Estonia and Latvia, and I've noticed it there. And even in Malta, where I was last month, I saw some signs of it. I mean, not everywhere. We're talking about a handful of places in Malta. But so what was interesting was I walked past a real estate vendor, an estate agent in Valletta in the capital, there was a Bitcoin sign in the window with all these luxury apartments and the yacht marina and all this kind of stuff to rent and to buy. So I went in and I asked them, you know, hey, take Bitcoin. They said, yes, we do. Um, I was like, so I can rent, buy a place with Bitcoin? And they're like, yep. So I don't know how they're doing it. I didn't want to, you know, press them too much. But um, I don't know if they're taking it as a, you know, kind of a, it's a, payment processor, intermediary, like BitPay they're using, or if it's, or Globy or something like that, or if they're actually, the owners are requesting Bitcoin as an alternative to Euros, and they're conducting the sales in, in Bitcoin as um, something like uh, House Hoddle, the Latvian website uh, run by the people that also make the Baltic Honey Badger uh, conference, um, how they do, how they have like a kind of marketplace where you can buy houses with Bitcoin or your apartments and so on. So I haven't seen huge amounts of merchant adoption. Indeed, when I was in Scotland, uh, until a few months ago, I was living in Glasgow in uh, Scotland and I uh, was running uh, you know, a series of meetups and um, you know, just trying to spread the good word, make sure that people don't get uh, kind of misled or taken down um, wayward paths. So we thought we could do you know, this was just before Christmas, you know, 15 months ago. might be nice to do kind of a pub crawl where we'll go get some drinks, get some food, we'll pay with cryptocurrency, it'll be fun. We found basically nothing. This is a city of a million people. It's quite a big city. Well, maybe not quite a million. It's the biggest city in Scotland, one of the largest cities in the UK. Almost nothing. There was one small cafe where the owner's son was into Bitcoin, so you could pay with Bitcoin for your you know, fry up if you, if you so desired. And there was a kind of a rough and ready pub where you could pay with Scotcoin, which is a local project of dubious repute, shall we say. 
um, because the guy that you know runs that owns the pub was also a Scott Coin guy, something like that. So you have very heterogeneous kinds of levels of adoption from place to place. If you go to London, it's a different matter entirely. I'm not saying that you can necessarily pay for your, you know, your um, Caesar salad in a, you know, Carnaby Street cafe with with Bitcoin um, more often than not, but you can find places and ways to transact. There's a black cab, uh, a taxi, traditional London taxi that drives around. It's called the BTC Black Cab. You can find it on Twitter. You send it a DM if you want a ride. You can pay in Bitcoin or, or Lightning. So there are little kind of pockets of, of adoption coming now. Now, what I, what I foresee, or what I you know, hope for, is that as the kind of ecosystems build out and the on and off ramps between fiat and, and, and Bitcoin um, kind of get uh, proliferate in, in, in type and diversity and number, and there'll be a lot of this friction will be removed. There's some really interesting projects in the UK, like Azteco, which is Bution's project, and Fast Bitcoins, which is uh, Danny Brewster's project, which are kind of like point-of-sale vouchers. Um, so if you think of a phone that's kind of in a case, attached to a little printer, um, then they can just, if you're in person in a shop, you can hand them cash or whatever. They can print you a little voucher, and you go off to the, to the website, and then... Bitcoins go to wherever you tell it to go. So things like that will start to remove some of the of the friction because we still need that some more infrastructure to be built out and mature to have these uh, circular economies. Yeah, sorry, uh, I accidentally turned off my, my microphone. Anyway, nice. I was just thinking that in Romania we still have these. Small places where, for example, one of the one of the venues where you could have your mobile phone repaired or fixed or had parts changed, mm-hmm. used to accept Bitcoin, and that was maybe a year ago. And uh-huh. they had this big logo of Bitcoin right on the window of the shop, so it was very visible and close to the city center. And there was also a pawn shop which accepted Bitcoin and Ethereum and XRP and Monero, and I think also Litecoin. Mm-hmm. And they were they were basically giving you about five percent less than the coin market cap price, so you could do crypto to fiat trades mm. with the owner. But in recent months, I saw them closing down. And last month... I mean, the uh, shops closed down or they just closed that payment option? They closed down the payment option. Mm-hmm. They just gave up completely on Bitcoin. And I mm-hmm. don't think it was because of the bear market. I think it was because of regulations and tax reasons. And mm-hmm. maybe that they received a couple of visits from the financial authorities and they were asked about how much of these digital assets they were holding. And there, there was no framework up to last month. There was no way to actually tax cryptocurrencies. And now they created a law with, I'm not sure if it was enacted as in signed into law mm-hmm. yet, but it, it was about taxing crypto gains. But gains are defined as 
the kind of profit that you're making when you transact from crypto to fiat. So sure. if, if you make crypto to crypto gains, as in increasing the amount of Bitcoin that you're holding, then you're not liable to pay any taxes because you're not holding any kind of currency that is recognized by the government, obviously. That's quite sensible. And like, you know, it's a kind of a pragmatic way of approaching these things that you kind of think of cryptocurrency as a basket that you hold. And as you exit that kind of sphere of that basket, then it might trigger a taxable event. That's much more sensible than the way things have been in the States where every trade that you might make from one cryptocurrency to another counts as a taxable event. And really, I think one of the drivers of the negative sentiment and you know, possibly by extension, the bear market is this unclear legal regulatory status, lots of you know, um, ominous words from, from uh, government types, regulators, and, and, and so on. And that's something I've been looking at as well. Maybe there's ways that we can develop tools that can educate lawmakers and regulators a little bit. Oh, yeah, but... As far as I know, most people involved in Bitcoin are, are not very interested in collaborating with their government. And mm. they just leave them in the dark or they leave them with partial or very bad knowledge of the phenomena. Mm-hmm. So they end up hiring all sorts of people whom they think are specialists and actually understand how it works. But they end up being ill-advised and making the worst decisions possible. And I see sometimes people making fun of governments and how poorly they actually grasp the whole concept of... It's actually data. It's code that you have stored on a public ledger and to which you have access with your keys. So in yes. that sense, if you, you if you describe it like this, you don't own anything but a line of code and mm-hmm. like a password. You have a password and you can say it's yeah. like your email address. And how are they supposed to tax your email address? Maybe sure. that emails are valuable to others and you can just cede ownership to, of them to somebody else. But at the same time, you can also describe it as... Something like, let me think of a virtual currency, like M-Pesa, if you heard of it. Of course. And also, I think in China, they have something with that all-encompassing application. I don't remember. Those are more like payment payment processes. I was in Shenzhen a few weeks ago, and uh, I was sitting with some buddies having uh, eating some crab. And uh, the meal finished. And on the table, there's a QR code, and they scanned it with their uh, Alipay or WeChat Pay, one of these kind of um, payment processor things. And uh, I said to them, like, you know, I only had cash because you know, none of my cards work in China. I, I walked over the border from Hong Kong. And they said, oh, no, we've already paid. It's done. You know, the, so they've got these very low friction fintech apps, you could say. They're not, you know, anything peer-to-peer or, you know, hash, uh, inverted commas decentralized. Um, but I think it's a big problem, this kind of lack of education of regulators because, um, you know, people that are, you could say, Bitcoiners or, or, uh, or you, you know, uh, cryptocurrency uh, uh, aficionados um, might see governments as a threat and therefore um, not want to help them understand what's going on. And other people take a different perspective, which might be more that if uh, regulators and lawmakers and the like were a little bit better educated about 
um, what's going on here, you know, what these assets are really like and about, then that might help them make less um, or better informed judgments. And then they might be able to see the similarities and differences between things. I mean, one of the biggest problems we have right now is that when people think of, you know, inverted commas, cryptos, they lump into this gigantic bucket, Bitcoin, XRP, and, you know, two dozen ICOs, and they just call them the same thing. When, you know, in reality, these things are very different. I mean, just they have some similarities in terms of the way that they're constructed, kind of the technological paradigm from which they originate, but many of their characteristics are very different. So, yeah, I've taken it upon myself to develop some, you could call it like a taxonomy project. I'm working on kind of classification and characterization um, concepts, you know, things that somebody non-technical could use as a tool to try and tease apart similarities and differences in a subjective sense between these things. So maybe that, that would help them see, for example, the Bitcoin is more like a lump of gold than it is like Apple stock. And then XRP might be more like Apple stock than it is a lump of gold. So just those very kinds of basic, easy to understand things. And I also totally agree with your point about and the people that end up advising the governments. Largely, it's, it's, it's a net negative. Um, I, I guess you could call them the, the blockchain experts of LinkedIn, the, the people in suits that kind of come from banking or fintech backgrounds that, um, you know, there's a bandwagon passing by and they jump aboard it. And it's easy to call yourself an expert when nobody else knows what they're talking about. And you can wave your hands around and use some, use some buzzwords. And um, then you're an expert and then you're on the panel and then you're advising the central bank and then you're advising the regulator. So those kinds of things are dangerous. But um, there are some people with their heads screwed on that understand Bitcoin very well that are also talking to lawmakers and regulators and central banks. I know some of them. So that's, that's promising in itself. I agree. But as you said, there is a large difference or huge difference between what we have in Bitcoin and what we see in XRP. And usually people confuse the idea of fintech with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And they are very different in their origins and in their purpose and in their methods. Oh, absolutely. Say that something which comes from the cypherpunk culture and which actually tries to be the kind of wealth that you can possess without having it confiscated. And that's maybe the greatest value that Bitcoin has. And something like that cannot be compared with something that's supposed to be liquid. And by design, it's supposed to be a mean of exchange. Like you said, WeChat and Alipay mm-hmm. and all these applications, which, by the way, are so much more efficient than anything oh, blockchain. Definitely. Of course, because they're designed for efficiency. They're optimized for, for efficiency, for performance. Blockchains absolutely suck for efficiency and performance. I mean, uh, if that hasn't become apparent to everybody uh, by now, uh, I guess it will kind of gradually dawn, dawn on them over time. And these things are not, you know, these cryptocurrencies, peer-to-peer, trust-minimized networks are not designed to be efficient. They're designed to be, they're, they're more like tanks than Ferraris. I mean, you know, they're meant to be resilient. They're meant to 
withstand external pressure and, and you know, and uh, adversarial conditions. But I meet a lot of people who tell me that I'm short-sighted in my belief in Bitcoin, and there are so many use cases for the blockchain that are being experimented right now, and that IBM and Carrefour and some other business venture mm-hmm. large corporation has found some kind of application that is very much efficient, and it's going to revolutionize the way that we use maybe transactions and we track down because that's the whole purpose of a blockchain. You have it written down and it's immutable theoretically. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, sometimes I'm torn and I I like to listen to them and I try to understand what they're up to, but it's not very often that I get Mm -hmm. to. Maybe I can play, maybe I can play devil's advocate. So I think that, both sides of the argument can have an element of truth in them, but it's only because things are relative. These aren't absolute truths necessarily. So um, there are a few applications where I can imagine. I mean, obviously, we've been through a few years of people strapping blockchains to everything and um, you know, then realizing that it's not a particularly well-suited uh, technology match. Um, but there are some that I think this, even if they're not, a blockchain is the ultimate you know, um, solution to, to a technology challenge or problem may provide incremental improvement because the existing solution sucks so much. And some of those examples are, I've heard insurance company CEOs foaming at the mouth about blockchains. I've heard, you know, does IBM have a project with Miask, the Danish shipping company, putting shipping containers on the blockchain? They love that. A land registry is going on the blockchain. Now, what those three things, these are usually kind of not public blockchains. These are, you know, hyperledger type enterprise, the walled garden, intranet blockchains. Um, But the thing, the the commonality, the common strand between those three things is that the current processes are absolutely terrible. People are pretty much still doing shipping by pen and paper. So if you can imagine, uh, you know, land registry, buying a house, there's all these different links in the chain, so to speak. And so, you know, shipping is, you know, manifest, still done by pen and paper. Uh, insurance, there's all these, you know, loss adjusters and claimants and, and uh, then the valuers. And there's all these different links in, 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 the, in the process, in the business process. And so if you use a blockchain, it's actually kind of a shipping container is not that bad an analogy. <clears throat> so what a shipping container does is it kind of standardizes. It forces everybody to use the same structure uh, and therefore, you can optimize a process around it. So you can almost think of blockchains as shipping containers for data between these mutual parties. Whether they trust each other or not um, is, is, you know, uh, depends. Depends on the situation. Um, but if you're doing something on pen and paper, doesn't get you can't get less efficient than that. So blockchain will provide some kind of incremental advantage. But of course... They could all just, you know, say it's a consortium of shipping co- companies or whatever, insurance uh, um, industry uh, service providers. They could just use the same goddamn database structure, API uh, setup, and and uh, you know web uh, web uh, portals, and they could not need a blockchain at all and have much better efficiency. But what the blockchain is kind of doing is what shipping containers did to to, to logistics, which is kind of forcing everybody. To, to use the same um, template. 
I guess. So that's, that's really as much as I can see there. Um, I think people might find some incremental um, steps forwards there. There are some very smart people doing interesting things, um, looking a bit broader than money um, as well, but they're all experiments. So I'm very interested in them as experiments, but I don't see if there's, I don't know if there's value there yet. Another argument that I like to present, and I guess this came from a conversation, it was a brief exchange that I had with Peter Todd on Twitter, and mm-hmm. that resulted in an article which I wrote yesterday and got published today. And probably by the time this podcast gets you know, released as a second season altogether, it's going to be old news already. But mm-hmm. I pretty much argued that Bitcoin is not the culmination of that cashless society that some people talk about. And if anything, we, we need cash in order to have a fungible Bitcoin at this point. Mm-hmm. When you go to various places where they don't even accept the credit card or there is nothing that you can do without the local currency, it's yep. to have fiat. And that's not going to change for at least a few decades, even though they're going to try to promote the idea that they can have EOS terminals and stuff like that to accept people's credit cards. You'll still have the farmer's market or lots of places where it's best to use cash. And at the end of the day, it's much more private to hold a few mm-hmm. pieces of paper in your wallet and nobody knows how many of them you actually own and what sure. you do with them, where you spend them. Whereas when you use your credit card, you leave traces about your your whereabouts and your spending behaviors mm-hmm. and all that kind of Orwellian stuff. And when we look at Bitcoin and we think about how we can use it in commerce and transactions, it's not the most private choice that we have. And there are easy ways to actually make connections between your public key and realize how much Bitcoin you might be holding. And Mm -hmm. sometimes depending on the kind of wallet that you're using, you actually leave traces and people see how much Bitcoin you own when you spend it. Sure. Make like a purchase of the equivalent of 0.05. They're going to be able to see that you actually own a whole Bitcoin. And that's not mm-hmm. something that you reveal when you go to the supermarket and you buy something with a $20 bill and you just take it out of your wallet and nobody else sees how much money you have left. So mm. until we solve this, these issues with privacy and also fungibility, yeah. it's difficult to make exchanges between Bitcoin and cash, but not, not in terms of going to Coinbase and registering to some kind of KYC process and basically telling them how much money you have, how much you're taking away. But in terms of having small meetings or knowing, knowing somebody who wants to buy Bitcoin at a price that is lower than on exchanges, and it's pretty much like local Bitcoins, but without the credit card component. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it requires trust. That's the only yeah. problem right yeah. there because you're yeah. meeting with a stranger and unless you know something about them, like their full name, they can go and report them to the police or something, or to be certain that they're not going to try to come with some kind of gang and rob you, mm-hmm. uh, torture you, yeah. take away your Lots. private keys or something. 
But yeah. this kind of interaction is much more productive and is actually the spirit of Bitcoin itself. It's much more cypherpunk than being stubborn and saying, I'm going to use Bitcoin in everything. As the technology mm-hmm. is still immature and it doesn't have all the qualities of sound money and all the advantages that we might look for when we want completely private and safe transactions. I mean, safe, they are safe, but not in the sense that you preserve some kind of private information about you that you're giving away whenever you make a transaction on the open ledger of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots to unpack there. So let's start with the privacy and the fungibility. So it's interesting that we bring this up because um, uh, Matt B, who you had on the first season, uh, we're writing a series of articles together in um, uh, a magazine called In the Mesh, which is Gotenna's outlet to do with the political aspects of decentralized technology. Uh, Gotenna make mesh networking devices so that you can transact, say, in areas, or you can broadcast messages peer-to-peer in areas which might be, uh, you know, internet might be restricted or censored or, or, or you're offline or something like that. So, yeah, privacy and fungibility are definitely linked concepts. So the lack of fungibility in the money impacts the privacy of the individual, as, as you were saying. And so cash is still king in many ways because you can transact without uh, kind of digital breadcrumbs and this kind of, you know, Orwellian super state machine learning um, uh, monolith learning everything about you and trying to second guess your movements and, and, and what have you. And it is, you know, for all of us, if we start to think about how much information we have to give up to, to move around or to transact online or to do this and that, it's quite horrifying. So, um, and you really don't know where your data is going. So I told you about how I used to do this travel hacking thing. So I used to harvest uh, air miles on credit cards, which involves getting a card, spending a bit of money on it, getting the reward, canceling the card, getting another card and, and doing that. And I got a letter about 18 months ago from Equifax, the company that does credit reference scoring and, they're very famous for getting a, having a huge hack and losing a lot of very sensitive information. I got a letter from them saying, yeah, your data was on our server in America, and sorry. I thought to myself, well, why is my data on your American server? I'm not American. I'm, you know, I'm British. What's my, why is it there? And, um, you know, so we don't even really know what happens with the data as it gets warehoused and, and moved around to, So cash is king, but, uh, you know, cash is also issued by, there's also an issuer of the cash. So if you cast your mind back a year or two to what happened in India, where they demonetized the 100 rupee notes, and 100 rupees was the highest value note. It's only about 15 euros or something like that. They demonetized the 50, the 50 and the 100 rupee notes with I can't remember how, 10 days notice, two weeks notice, something like that. So that's when you saw those pictures that went around the world of huge queues of people trying to um, cash in their money for the new money. Or, and the, the whole point, I think, was to try and sort of smoke people out, kind of run a turnstile to get the black market, um, to kind of suppress the black market, which is really rampant in India. It actually reminds me a little bit of what's going on with Zcash at the moment. So I don't know if you've been following this, 
Zcash had this inflation bug due to an error in one of its uh, cryptographic proofs. And what's been going on now is as they've upgraded from one phase of the project to another, previous one was called Sprout and the next one's called Sapling. So they're doing this kind of turnstile where they're auditing the coin supply as it comes out of the shielded pool, out the hidden pool of Z addresses um, into the transparent pool, which is kind of like Bitcoin-like, you know, UTXOs that everyone can see on a, on a public ledger then goes into the sapling pool, the new kind of privacy shielded pool. So if there's any inflation, they should be able to detect it as people leave the, the sprout shielded pool. But of course, if somebody's leaving the turnstile, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were the, they were the culprit. So the last people to leave the pool will be the ones that lose out because they'll be, it's a bit like you buy a ticket for a concert and you get there and they say, oh, it's already full. We, you know, 500 people showed up, that's the capacity. And, you know, just because you've got a ticket doesn't mean you get in. So um, you'd have to, you're a bit at the mercy of the issuer with, with cash. And, you know, de- de- demonetization of large denomination banknotes is, uh, you know, it's happening all over the place. They're talking about the UK, uh, the, the Treasury or the Bank of England is talking about uh, getting rid of the £50 notes. Now, £50 is only, you know, it's barely more than €50 Euros these days. That's the largest note we've got. They're talking about getting rid of that. So the denomination of cash is getting lower and lower as um, governments try to kind of gently push people towards using digital payments. I was having a conversation on Twitter with a friend yesterday about Sweden. So I used to run a music festival uh, in uh, rural Sweden. And this is in a forest in the grounds of a disused mining facility, uh, you know, a few hours outside Stockholm. Kind of in the place where everyone has their cabins in the wood near all the beautiful lakes that you, you see. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings country. Now, a few years ago, um, the treasury was stolen from the, you know, the cash box was stolen from the, from the festival. And they lost, you know, several thousand uh, euros equivalent, let's say. And so the festival went cashless. And now this is, you know, a small festival, less than a thousand people in a disused mine. There's no running water or electricity. You have to get all of that from the town. And yet the festival was cashless. And the reason they, they were easy, so easy to push on to do that is because Sweden is, is the closest thing that the planet's got to a cashless society. At its peak, 97% plus of all transactions were cashless. Um, but the, and they did try to make a cashless society, but they failed because there are people in society that either can't, won't, or, you know, unable to, don't have access to technology, um, to, to use uh, electronic payments. So in, in Sweden, they have a system a bit like that WeChat and Alipay chat, uh, uh, we, we pay and Alipay with QR codes. I think, um, I think it's called Swish in Sweden. I can't remember. All of the Nordic countries have, have this kind of thing. So people are very used to paying on their phones and it's just linked to their bank accounts and it's all very you know, fintech and centralized and efficient and, and uh, you, know, you trust the bank because it's the bank. But the problem is there's an intermediary in every transaction. So cash is, is kind of peer-to-peer, right? Or as close to peer-to-peer as you're going to get with, um, with um, old money. And so what the, you know, the banks, the, the, the Reichsbank, the, the central bank of Sweden started to worry that, um, you know, you've got all this systemic risk, all of this kind of, um, the, high, the stakes of failure of these payment processes are extremely high. If there's a service outage, Nobody can do anything. You know, you can't buy your train ticket. You can't buy your um, meal. You can't pay to use the conveniences. So 
it introduces all of these fragilities in our society, relying on these um, on these single points of failure. And um, back to your point about the uh, cash-led economies, you reminded me of, of of India and Cambodia in particular. Uh, so Cambodia is interesting because they don't have well, they do have their own money, the real, but um, because the country had like very a choppy history, very very um, rocky road it's been through. At one point, the United Nations basically took over the administration of the country. I think Australia had a lot to to, to do with it, and um, a lot of American GIs were based there after the fall of the Pol Pot Khmer Rouge regime, and they brought dollars with them. And the, I don't know if you've heard of Gresham's Law, this kind of economic inverted commas law, um, that bad money. No, what is it? It's uh, there's Gresham's Law. And there's Thayer's law, which is the opposite. And they're both apparently laws, but they contradict each other. So Gresham's law is bad money drives out good money. And Thayer's law is good money drives out bad money. So I suppose in Cambodia, the country dollarized because Thayer's law was in effect, whatever that means. So they still have their old money, but it's pegged to the dollar. So the currency is de facto the dollar. People like dollars. They prefer dollars to, to riel. And uh, so a lot of the transactions are still in cash. What was very interesting, uh, I went back, uh, you know, that was there six weeks ago. It had been a couple of years since I'd, I'd last been there. You start to notice electronic commerce, digital commerce, digital payments. So they've got an app in Southeast Asia called Grab, which is a bit like Uber or Taxify. And it's got electronic payments inside it. So you can now hail a, you can even hail a tuk-tuk. You can hail a, like, you know, rickety motorbike. You can hail a taxi or a four-by-four. And it can be paid for kind of in that fintech online app payment paradigm. So um, it it is actually happening quite quickly. I remember I went to India a couple of years ago, and Uber was trying to enter the market in India. Now, uh, in India, you've got these kind of uh, auto rickshaws or tuk-tuks, just just like in Cambodia. These either LPG or petrol, kind of mini, mini cars, you could say. They're just like a, you know, they look like they're made out of, paper or paper mache or something. They're very, very fragile things, but they're, they're great for the little kind of in, intra-city journeys. And Uber was trying to undercut the, the rickshaws with their cars, with their taxis. So part of the bargaining process in India, everything is bargaining, just as in Cambodia, these transaction economies. So you would literally get the price, get the expected fare from Uber and then the rickshaw driver would ask you for two or five times that because you're a foreigner. And then you just show them the app and then they would acquiesce. So I suppose there are some kind of price discovery signal advantages to, to these kinds of electronic um, payment or, or um, electronic uh, platform um, apps and, 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 and uh, companies entering these, these kind of frontier economies. Um, but uh, you're right that there's always going to be a place for cash. And I don't know if you saw the recent guidance from the, I think it was the IMF this week or the week before. People have been getting in a, in a rage about it on, on Twitter. You've probably seen it about this idea that, you know, should a recession or a global downturn arrive, central banks usually have to cut interest rates four to 6%. And, you know, interest rates are already at basically zero. Most of the developed world so the, the article or the, you know, the, the position paper was exploring very negative interest rates, you know, minus 5%, minus whatever percent. And the way that they're proposing to do that was to kind of um, 
you make a cashless society so that your money's in the bank and then your kind of e-lew or your e-pound or your e-crown or whatever um, then has an exchange rate against the paper money. So you're kind of bifurcating the money into, into paper and electronic money and then there's kind of a non, non-unity exchange rate between them to allow them to um, haircut your, your money, to, you know, to, to, to take your money while it's in the bank. You pay you negative rates of return on it in order to keep the kind of crazy quantitative easing uh, fake money train going a little bit longer. So I think all of these things are going to um, compel people to get more into, to become more interested in real alternatives to the legacy financial system. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is an excellent example of something that does not subscribe to this kind of uh, you know, profligate, uh, debt-based, unsustainable financial paradigm. So I, I do wonder about that. But and also, you know, going back to places like India and Cambodia, there's also places where people aren't really free. You know, the governments can be quite uh, authoritarian. It can, you know, people just don't really have a concept of personal agency and sovereignty and freedom in a lot of these places. There's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of lack of transparency um, with the way the government works or, you know, where your tax dollars go and, and all this kind of thing. And so I think one of the, the, the greatest narratives that we may well see in the next, you know, the coming age of Bitcoin is, is uh, the potential of Bitcoin as a liberation technology, as a way for for the individual, for the downtrodden and dispossessed to reclaim their agency, their financial independence, their, their, their you know, sovereignty, in a way, uh, from these kind of failing and collapsing uh, institutions. I actually agree. And while you're telling your story about Sweden and how mm-hmm. they had their experiment with the cashless society... I actually have an experience from 2012 when I was there as an exchange student. And I remember that I had the money to pay my rent in cash because Mm -hmm. I I would receive my scholarship on my credit card. Actually, it was a debit card, but anyway, Mm -hmm. I'd receive my scholarship there and I, I would go to the ATM and withdraw the corresponding amount to pay my rent. And then I would go to the office and they would say, oh, we don't accept cash. <laughs> and I would tell them, so what do I do? Oh, you can go to Western Union or MoneyGram and tell them that you're trying to send to this account. And mm-hmm. I went to, I have actually waited in line for 30 minutes at Western Union. And they, they told me when I got to the desk that not only I have to pay about 16 euro fee for the transaction, mm-hmm. But also, I'm not eligible to make any kind of transaction just because I'm not a member of the Schengen area in the European Union. So Mm -hmm. my passport was not eligible to make use of any financial services that were provided by Western Union in Sweden. So you basically couldn't, you could barely transact in Sweden in the cashless paradigm. So I had the money in my pocket. I, mm-hmm. I showed it to them and I said, you know, I'm trying to send this into that account. How, how difficult can this be? No bank wanted my money unless I opened an account. 
Mm-hmm. And I was not eligible for that either because I was not a citizen. I did not have a proper residence because I was living in the student campus for only six months. So there was no way for me to pay my rent. And that's a harsh realization that you have when you get there and you realize mm-hmm. that you have the money to pay for something and nobody wants your money, even though it's the mm-hmm. local currency. It's not like you have some, you know, Bolivar or... Mm-hmm. Petro or whatever bad currency that nobody really wants. And the solution that I used at the time was to ask a French friend, because France is part of the European Union. I just gave her the money and told her, you know, you wait in line here. You explain to them that you want to send money to this account. So actually, I've done it through Western Union. Mm -hmm. So... That was the only way that I could do it. And then I had to repeat it every month and ask somebody who came from a country which is in the Schengen area of the European Union. And then tell them, you know, if you have 30 minutes, you can really do me a big favor right now. I would ask them after class, can anyone actually help me pay my rent? And they they were intrigued by the idea. And it was ridiculous to them also as... Uh, there was no way for me to pay for my rent. And I did not have that kind of online access to my bank account. That's the problem. That service at the time was, I guess, an extra five euro a month to be able to check your balance online and make payments from their online platform. Mm-hmm. And I did not opt for that. And there was no way for me to get that feature unless I traveled back to Romania and that was expensive. And yeah. I did not have time for that because I was attending classes on the on a daily basis. And yeah, so you start to see the kind of electronic payment systems as kind of a walled garden, like it's an invitation access. <clears throat> and going back to the conversation I was having with a friend yesterday on Twitter, we were talking about Sweden, and um, we were talking about people on the street, you know, the downtrodden, the dispossessed, vagrants, homeless people, or sleeping rough, or or however you want to look at it. Now, one of the the kind of quite curious things in Sweden is the cashless society got so far that um, people that were asking for money on the streets of the big cities like Stockholm, or I don't know where you were in Sweden, by the way, but uh, let's say Stockholm for an example, um, people would have point-of-sale terminals as they were asking for money and begging for money on the street. They might be selling a magazine, or they might be asking for, for donations. And my friend said, that's just crazy because, you know, they can be censored, they can be denied access. And that is true, but nobody carries coins and notes with them anymore. So you wouldn't get any donations if you were just asking for for change. I mean, in the UK, we still have a cash society on some level. You can still pay with cash most most places. Some people like to, some people prefer the convenience of of cards and, 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 and what have you. And so if you see somebody on the street they're asking for change. They're asking for coins, asking for, you know, cash. Um, whereas in uh, in Sweden, they, they, they want to swipe your credit card and they want to uh, get a, a kind of contactless payment from you. So I thought that was quite curious. But then also, you know, when you're on the street, you might fall into, you might fall into, the, you know, inverted commas, the wrong crowd, you might get into inverted commas, unsavory activities. And if that then comes back to, you know, people on the street are much more likely to get arrested or have 
you know, you know, problems with the law. And then if you get denied your access to your electronic point of sale facility, then you're kind of in that situation that you're in where you're on the outside looking in. But at least you had the access to, to friends that, you know, at the university, presumably they had, you know, they, they weren't on the streets, you know, they were, you know, um, people with access to modern conveniences and, and the things that we take to, to be, um, you know, the, the trappings of civilized modern life, like a house and, you know, heating and food and all of that stuff. Um, but if you don't have people that can help you get your money out of um, Romania and into, into Sweden, then, you know, you would be as you know, stranded as, as some of these people on the street might be if they lost their access to their um, payment process. I've had a similar experience in France two years later mm-hmm. when I went there for a scholarship. And I could not open a bank account because I did not have a proper residence as I was living without a contract. And mm-hmm. that's common with exchange students. You have to look for a place and the landlord just tells you that they don't want to sign a contract because they want to avoid taxes. And you have spent about two months looking for a decent place to live in. And that's the only one that you were able to find. And you're not going to argue against it. You're going to say, okay, I don't care. I, I just give you the money. I'm going to stay here. Just don't evict me or anything. Sure. And when I went to a bank office, they told me that there is nothing that they can do to me. And I guess also the fact that I gave them my ID and they saw that I'm Romanian and I spoke to them in English and they picked up the phone and they said in French, and I can actually understand French. I don't speak it very well, but I understand what people say. And they said, we have this Romanian citizen and he wants to open an account. And within 10 seconds, they, they just told me to go out because there is nothing that they can do for me. And 30 seconds before that, they almost appointed me for the next week to come and get my card. But if you don't have a credit card or a bank account in France, you don't benefit from many services. Like if you're a student, you cannot have a transportation card with discounts. You cannot buy certain items or above a certain amount of money. So anything more expensive than, let's say, 3,000 euro cannot be bought unless you have a bank account. But mm-hmm. it's not like I had that much money. I was actually paying 500 for my monthly rent and, you know, living off what I could buy on discount from supermarkets. But anyway, th- these experiences have made me appreciate something like Bitcoin, which is not only universal, but mm-hmm. has the qualities that make it less Orwellian than fiat money, which can be controlled and centralized and censored and confiscated. (laughs) It's terrible when you think about it. We are part of this system that theoretically we are financing it with our tax money and it works for us. But the more we look into it and we see its development over time, we realize that actually it works against us. And it doesn't really do much for us in the long term. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think um, you, you know that, to this point at one moment in your life when you have to choose between becoming a high-ranking politician and trying to change the system according to your views, or doing some kind of grassroots politics in your community and trying to convince people that 
it's a good idea to move away from this financial system and maybe have some kind of reforms that you come up or you, you can take care of yourself and you take it upon yourself to handle everything and it becomes a matter of agency and self-discovery and individuality and independence. Mm. You try to educate others into using the same kind of attitude, hoping that the government someday will turn towards you and try to negotiate their position and maybe bring a change. So it's either you join them trying to change something or you express your individuality in ways that they cannot censor and hope that at some point in the future, they are going to maybe just listen to you and try to adapt their way of conducting affairs according mm -hmm. to your expectations. Yeah, there's another lens you can look at this this from, you know, your experiences and, and uh, you know, the experiences we were, hypothetical experiences we were talking about with people who are kind of on the outside. And you can kind of think of, you know, cash facilitates an informal economy as well as a formal one. You know, you were paying your rent in cash because the landlord wanted cash for, you know, he was looking to do some informal business, you could say. Um, and digital payments, credit cards, bank payments, and so on, they don't really exist in an informal economy. You know, everything is, is very tightly observed, recorded, and uh, regulated, you know, recorded. Um, whereas something like Bitcoin being, you know, peer-to-peer, -peer, even though the ledger is open and it's public and everyone can see every transaction and so on, um, it does allow for an informal economy to be built around it, as well as a formal economy. I mean, you've all seen those, we've all seen those uh, guys in suits from institutions that, you know, talk about Bitcoin as a, you know, the heralder of a, the herald of a new asset class and how it's, uh, you know, they're building financial products based on it and, and so on. So I also think there's another side of it as well, which you're you also getting at, which is kind of the potential of, of Bitcoin as a kind of a guerrilla technology, um, something that can tilt the balance of power back towards the individual or the, you know, small group collective community and perhaps leave a little bit less power for the larger institutions, the, you know, national governments or the, you know, state apparatuses and, and, and so on. And um, that's actually kind of the, the theme of the, of the work that I've been doing with, with Matt B is, is kind of looking at, looking at Bitcoin as a, as a, a way to kind of opt out of, let's say, a political situation that you don't philosophically agree with or how to have an alternative um, when the, the money of the, 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 the territory that you inhabit is being debased by mismanagement or you know, Cantillon effects where people are printing money to line their own pockets and debasing everybody else's money. We spoke about hyperinflation in Romania and Iraq. That's kind of, you know, how those things go. The, the voracious appetite of the, the state printing press when too few hands are operating it with too, too little oversight. And so having this kind of, as you said, I really like um, Nick Carter's description of the assurances of Bitcoin, where he talks about, I can't remember the exact terms for all of them, but uh, kind of like open entry, it's kind of permissionless um, entry. Anyone can, can participate in the network. 
the censorship resistance, the seizure resistance, the counterfeit resistance, and the free exit. And um, those are the kind of the, the most important characteristics for people that live in places that aren't that free, where the government or some other powerful entity is making their lives worse, it's got too much power, um, and it's making decisions that don't have the best um, intentions for the people in mind. And I think that, that, you know, going back to that point of Bitcoin being a liberation technology, I think that it's, it's gradually dawning on people. Maybe the bear market has some upsides, you know. Nobody likes to, to, to feel poor, but um, maybe the kind of the narrative of a couple of years ago of like, you know, Bitcoin is a, is a, a get-rich-quick scheme or, a, you know, it's the hottest investment in history. That seems to have faded a little bit. Now instead of people talking about Bitcoin being a kind of a financial instantiation of free speech or a you know code based instantiation of free speech, and um, I think that's really important. And what we see now is is you know, more and more um, in the last let's say twelve or eighteen months since I started thinking about this stuff with Matt, uh, which is a kind of an open initiative called Reaching Everyone. Um, more and more we're seeing now all kinds of different ways of communicating, of, of nodes communicating, of transactions being broadcast, of private keys being passed between each other. You know, think about the, the ones that we know about, like hardware wallets and then you know, open dimes are kind of like a little cypherpunk version of a disposable hardware wallet, like, an on, like a bearer asset. So you could make a transaction on a little USB key that has some, some additional security and that transaction can say I'm going to buy your car and the price is 0.1 Bitcoin. I put 0.1 Bitcoin on my open dime. I hand the open dime to you. Now you own it. You can verify what's on there. Now I own your car and you own that. Now to the blockchain, to all these chain analytics uh, you know, companies that are providing services to governments and what have you, nothing has changed on the, on the, on the network. But the possession of that digital bearer asset has changed. So there's all kinds of interesting things going on now. I don't know if you've been following the, the latest um, experiments with ham radio. So Rodolfo Novak, uh, who, who runs uh, CoinKite, who made Open Dime and Coldcard, um, he started off a little bit of a trend with uh, ham radio. So he broadcast a private key, salted private key, over ham radio, over you know, pu- public long-range radio. Um, Nick Zabo and Elaine Ho were working on uh, something with... Uh, weak, uh, weak radio, you know, that, that could broadcast tens or hundreds of kilometers to go deep into censored areas. Um, you know, LoRa and LoRaWAN mesh networking devices um, can provide alternatives to people where the internet is being censored. So there's really like a, a huge proliferation of, of ingenious solutions uh, going on right now. In my opinion, it's the most exciting thing in, in the Bitcoin space um, is this kind of um, you know, mass expansion of the ways that people can transmit the information once they're on the network. Now, it doesn't quite take care of the, the on and the off ramps, you know, to get from your local currency or whatever you hold in your hands to into Bitcoin. Um, and that part, we still need to, we need to figure that one out. But um, I, I do pick up some lessons from, you know, these, these, these travels that I've had. So I remember, especially in, in rural India, You'll be on a bus and you'll arrive in a place, little town or whatever it is. 
the middle of nowhere, and the bus will pull up, or you know, whatever, the van or the car or the rickshaw, and you'll be in a dusty square. There may be nothing there, maybe just some jungle and some 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 mud, some dirt. But there's almost always somebody, usually a man, but somebody standing by a table selling GSM top-ups, mobile phone top-ups, like, you know, Vodafone, scratch card kind of things. And so maybe that's the way that everybody gets on, like little kind of Bitcoin scratch cards, very low denomination ones. And then people can verify that the, you know, they could scan, the, it could be a QR code to scan the public key. You can verify that the, um, the voucher still contains the, the value that it says it does. And then you... Um, can redeem that to your wallet or you can leave it on the voucher and then that's your way on to the network if you need to get onto the network or it can be something that you hold as a piece of paper with your value on it, like kind of a paper wallet, I guess. But the big upside of that is that you don't need to know a huge amount about how the network works, how to manage your keys, how to run a node, how to, you know, update software, seed phrase and, and all those other technical complexities that, that um, are non-trivial barriers to entry for, for people. And, you know, some people may not have the infrastructure. They may not have internet in their village. They may not have GSM. The government may have switched it off. They may not even have electricity. And so um, I think one of the ways that, that um, Bitcoin is going to survive the, um, the challenges that are placed in front of it by whoever the adversaries of the present and the future might be by having this diversity of mechanisms to conduct the transactions, to move data around private key, private keys or, or, or assign transaction data or um, you know, pieces of paper which act as kind of proxy bearer assets or simple devices, radio transmitting gear. I think that's extremely important. And uh, for me, that's the most, um, that's the most, mind-blowing thing that I, that I can see that's going on in Bitcoin space right now. I think I have one last question, and this mm -hmm. deals with... Yeah, we have been talking for over two hours, and I'm not sure if anyone will, will be listening <laughs> to all this, but I would be glad to know this, and if you have been listening to this, just send us a message on Twitter or something and say, hey, I'm one of the ones who have so much time on their hands <laughs> that I've listened <laughs> during my trip from one country to the other or something. I, I've listened to three hours of podcast. But I want to ask you if you believe that we are underestimating the power of governments and if you think that up to this point, it has been the honeymoon of Bitcoin as we never really had this kind of big attack from governments other than the propaganda of of it being a scam and being a Ponzi scheme and being something that collapses and trying to deter people from actually putting any money in it. We never had any kind of hash wars in the mm -hmm. sense that they, they try to overtake the network, create double spending or mm -hmm. as far as I know, maybe that's some people who try to create or maybe, you know, argue for an increased block size or argue for greater minor incentives, which translate in increasing the supply. So actually devaluing the existing supply 
Maybe that mm-hmm. these people are government agents and they are trying to destabilize from the inside and send their people to become influential and then talk about all this nonsense, which has nothing to do with the vision of Bitcoin and only deals with this small aspect like fees mm-hmm. and the size of blocks and validation times and all mm-hmm. the inefficiencies that the original design has. But that's for a very good reason that avoids issues. So <clears throat> let's get back to the original point. Do you think that we are underestimating governments? Okay, so let me um, let me signpost this because I was in a conference in London a couple of weeks ago uh, called Advancing Bitcoin, and um, before it there was a developer meetup a couple of days before, and Eric Vosku, who's the lead maintainer of Bitcoin, which is one of the Uh, client implementations of Bitcoin, alternative to Bitcoin Core. Uh, he gave a talk, which he calls Principles of Crypto Dynamics. You can find it on YouTube. He also gave a similar talk at um, Scaling Bitcoin in Tokyo recently. And he goes into a lot of these things where he talks about Bitcoins being in a honeymoon phase now, where it's too small. The government won't, like a big government, won't really care. It's not going to um, wreck a national financial system. It's not that big. Um, and he makes this point that, uh, you know, if it doesn't get much more well-resourced than an adversary than a government with a, a printing press that has a money that has a, you know, a, a, a significant liquidity. So I saw actually a graph today on, uh, on Twitter, which was a comparison of the security spend of Bitcoin, the amount of money it costs to, to, deploy the hash rate that secures the network versus the budget of the U.S. military. And it was log scale, and there's a very big difference between these two things. So, you know, if the U.S. military turned around tomorrow and said, oh, um, actually, Russia's our friend now, Iran's our friend now, Venezuela's our friend now, our biggest enemy is Bitcoin, then they could snap this thing in two very easily, assuming that they could marshal the kind of supply chain logistics together to, to, to gather the materials, to make the, or buy the ASICs, to, to, to run them, to, to censor transactions. They could, they could break the fungibility of Bitcoin by only mining transactions that they wanted to mine. So you could imagine kind of black UTXOs and white UTXOs, KYC coins that came out of Coinbase. They might let them get transacted because they know who, you know, the chain of custody of those. But then some, you know, 2010 UTXOs from some, you know, uh, dark web market or something like that, they might not like those to transact. So the, the, there are potential attacks there. And I think those are probably in Bitcoin's future, which is why I think the resilience and the, the breadth of, of transaction media and the improvement of, of the fungibility and the, uh, Uh, various aspects of, of, of transactional and address level privacy are really important for the, for the long-term um, prospect of the network. Um, there are, you know, you made the point about forks, you know, maybe the forks are social attacks, maybe the, or, you know, kind of government sponsored attacks, maybe the kind of conflicting narratives and the design choices that people put forward, bigger blocks, smaller blocks, change the block time, change the supply, Um, maybe they're social attacks as well. I mean, maybe they're social attacks by 
commercial entities, maybe they're social taxed by government entities, maybe they're not social, maybe they're social taxed by individuals, well-resourced individuals, and maybe they're not. Um, I guess in the fullness of time, we'll, we'll start to see those things. But it's funny that you bring this topic up because um, I'll be speaking at a few conferences uh, over the course of this year, and this is kind of the topic. You know, the topic is sort of why Bitcoin's resilience matters or could a government break Bitcoin? So I'll be unpacking a lot of those things. I don't want to say too much now because I, I, uh, I don't want to give out all of my, um, all of my thoughts and secrets uh, before I've, uh, I've um, put the talks together. But, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting, um, I suppose it's a hypothetical at the moment. It's a very interesting uh, you know, intellectual pathway to explore. And as Eric Voskul says in, in those talks, I really recommend everybody to watch them. Um, I don't see 100% eye to eye with, with, with Eric, but I think most of what he's saying is, is very hard to disagree with. That, you know, Bitcoin is just too small for a nation state to really care about. But if it got to the point where Bitcoin was, say that you know we have a global financial downturn, interest rates go to minus five, minus 10, they do this e-money thing, ban cash, and then you know your only opportunity to engage in an informal um, economy or peer-to-peer economy, or an only way to escape the um, kind of demurrage or the you know the, the the savings tax, I guess you could call it, on, on holding your money at the bank would be to use Bitcoin. Then you bet your bottom dollar that people are going to start seeing it as a threat because if. Bitcoin is the best money around, and the other money is getting worse and worse, then more and more people are going to get interested in it. And if governments start to ban Bitcoin, like really ban it, not like what we've had before where pressure gets exerted on exchanges, onerous regulatory and compliance regimes, I mean really ban this stuff. Like a few places have really banned it, but not that many. But if they, if governments start to go down that road, I mean, there's a saying in China, I, I, won't, I remember it literally, but um, it's basically that if the government bans something, it's because it's really good. So as soon as the government bans something in China, everybody starts paying attention to it. So I imagine that may have already happened in China when there was all the pressure on, I believe, the ICOs were basically kind of extinguished. I, can't, I don't know the exact mechanism. And a lot of exchanges had pressure placed on them, presumably to, to beef up KYC. So there wasn't any... Um, you know, funny business, people underreporting uh, gains and things like that. But if, you know, imagine that a government tries to actually ban Bitcoin. I believe that, ah, oh, now I'm remembering. I believe the Central Bank of Algeria banned Bitcoin last, last year or uh, 2017. Now, uh, you know, I'm not a citizen of Algeria. I've never visited Algeria. Um, I... I guess the government and the Central Bank of Algeria have some legitimacy within that territory. But say, for example, that you're Algerian and I'm Algerian and you're in Algiers and I'm in Paris. We have a one of two multi-signature wallet with X number of Bitcoins in it. Who owns that? And, uh, you know, when it gets transacted with, who's doing the transaction? So... There's also this kind of mismatch between the way that kind of traditional um, legal structures and, and um, you know, legislative uh, constructions are, are built up and the way that 
the, the Bitcoin works as this kind of you know radically decentralized orderless technology. So it's going to be interesting to see. The other thing to say is that you know fiat currencies have a limited lifetime. So no fiat currency has lasted forever. The, the, the British pound, I believe, is, the, is the, one of the record holders, at least if not the record holder. And it has definitely seen better days. So here's a little uh, diversion for you before we finish. Um, the pound sterling, the name comes from, like literally it used to mean, it, it was exchangeable for one pound, which was 424 grams in imperial measurements, of sterling silver, which was 92.5%. Purity silver. Now, if you go and look up the price of 450, uh, 454 grams of 92.5% purity silver now, it's a lot more than one pound. So, pound has lost over 99% of its purchasing power against silver. And silver is one of the most hated, poorest performing commodity assets on the planet right now. So, um, sooner or later, the, the fiat currencies will will struggle. You know, the, the uh, governments will have hard times. They'll put pressure on the monetary issuing authorities, the treasuries, the central banks to print more. Um, or there'll be this kind of, you know, electronic money, negative interest rate, rehypothecation, quantitative easing, chicanery. And um, the Bitcoin, as the, you know, um, what's that saying? That, you know, you can be the prettiest mayor in the slaughterhouse or something like that. Bitcoin may not be perfect. There's lots of problems with Bitcoin, lots of limitations, lots of inefficiencies, lots of uh, frustrating things and design choices, which are pretty much locked in now by the intersubjective consensus between the network stakeholders. But um, it's, I don't know if we're going to get a better, a, a better shot at something that provides a genuine alternative to the um, kind of perpetual mismanagement of, of state money. I really don't know if we're going to get that. I also think I want to ask you something more, and maybe that this mm -hmm. will be the closing thought that we are going to be having in regards to foreign policy and how Bitcoin, despite being the place where ideologically at least Bitcoin... I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So despite being ideologically the place where Bitcoin started, the United States doesn't really, in terms of foreign policy, doesn't really believe in the values of Bitcoin. And you can see how it's mm -hmm. being used in Venezuela, which is under financial embargo by the United States. And mm -hmm. it's being used in Palestine, for example, which I guess the United States does not want to support or acknowledge due to their partnership with Israel. And there are all sorts of places around the planet that use this stateless and immutable currency that nobody can do anything about. And if you look at it in geopolitical terms, you can actually deduct that it works much more in the interest of Russia than it does in mm -hmm. the interest of China or the United States. And this is just the mindset of being stuck in the world of superpowers. Mm. So yeah, actually, I, I wanted to to, get, to pick your brains on, on on Russia because you're in Eastern Europe in the former Soviet bloc, so you have probably a bit more insight than I do. I've always been pretty fascinated by by Russia. I, I watch uh, Russian TV quite a lot. I don't know if you know about this uh, English, Spanish, Arabic 
language channel now, French language uh, channel uh, RT, Russia Today. I watch an awful lot of stuff on that. They've got like Max Kaiser, who was one of the earliest public advocates of Bitcoin. He was shouting about Bitcoin on there since 2011, I think, something like that. And um, there was this story recently. I don't know if it was really verified that, you know, people were saying that Russia, the state or the central bank or whoever, you know, the part of the part of the government was going to start buying Bitcoin, was going to start accumulating Bitcoin as a strategic asset. And that's one of the kind of alternate pathways, alternate kind of, you know, timelines of Bitcoin, I suppose. Maybe it doesn't ever develop into a good money. Maybe it doesn't solve those privacy and fungibility issues. Maybe, you know, it, 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 it doesn't make it as a money. But it may end up being uh, the premier digital commodity, the, you know, the uncensorable, unseizable digital gold of the 21st century. And the other thing to say is we talked about, like, the government before as if it's some kind of monolithic entity. And if I was to have one criticism of the Bitcoin space as a whole, is everything is very America-centric. I mean, really America-centric. To the point where you listen to a conversation, it could be in a conference or a podcast or YouTube or whatever, and people are just talking about the government. They may not be, even be Americans, but they're usually talking about the American government. And there's a funny, uh, just a slight segue which I've noticed, um, as, a, as a Brit, I've noticed, on American TV, when they talk about royal families of, of the monarchs of different countries, they'll say the King of Spain, Queen of Netherlands, a Prince of Denmark. But when it comes to the, the Queen of, of Britain, they just call her the Queen. So maybe, um, maybe it's all uh, kind of tied up. The point I wanted to make was that nation states aren't some kind of contiguous mass that all have the same opinions and ideologies. We, we know this, we can see this in, in, in you know, the, the geopolitics that plays out every day in the world. So um, I wonder now if we're going to start to see nation states, some will, some will come around to the merits of Bitcoin, whether they see it as a money or a commodity or whatever else they see it as. I begin to wonder now if we start to see some countries kind of break rank a bit like Malta's done with the rest of the EU, which I thought was quite interesting. I mean, you know, you, you'd think that they would be a little bit constrained because of they're in this, you know, political and economic union. Um, I wonder if we're going to start to see some interesting geopolitical plays around Bitcoin. Maybe around the, you know, there'll be a, um, another bull market in X number of years. And, um, and as part of that, we'll start to see some nation states uh, start to... Uh, pound the table or talk up their bags, however you want to, however you want to think about it. And you know, it, as you said, if America is going to have this, the government of America is going to have this hostile perspective towards Bitcoin, then that kind of opens up a you know a counterpoint, a, a little bit of um, a, an opportunity for a you know for the block of nations which is not favoured by the Western consensus or the, you know, Anglo consensus, whatever you want to call it, the Atlantic consensus, I guess you could say, you know, the, the, the Russias, the Chinas, the Irans, the Venezuelas, then maybe there's something there for them. You know, if everyone is going to get excluded from SWIFT, from the international banking and, you know, payment clearing system, um, as a kind of, that's being used as a weapon to financially censor nations, so Russia's built their own alternative um, to SWIFT. And, you know, somebody like Iran, a country like Iran, which may well have been, uh, you know, 
kicked out of SWIFT already, I, I'm actually sure, or a country like Venezuela, once they go under embargo or sanctions or what have you, then maybe the, these parallel systems, you know, you know Russia's payment scheme or even a, a Bitcoin-denominated scheme, that might be something that you, you start to see. And I, I'm just, it's just speculation about possible futures here. But um, remember what we said earlier about Bitcoin being a Rorschach test. Different people and different you know, uh, entities that come from different perspectives will see different things in the potential and the possible futures of Bitcoin. And I think that, that may, may surprise some people when we see some very powerful, could be governments, could be corporations, could be wealthy individuals, start to um, use Bitcoin or leverage Bitcoin or take advantage of the, the features and the characteristics of Bitcoin in unexpected ways. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, me too. That that's part of this thrill and this ride. Mm-hmm. Maybe that sometimes we get distracted by price action, or we look at you know conflicts that go on every day on crypto Twitter. Mm. How people change their opinions and how they come up with new ideas, and how we see a change of narrative in terms of what we see in different projects and how they are presented to the average consumer. But at the end of the day, if we think about the grander scheme and we think about what it's going to be like in 10 years from now, like, for example, you look at CoinMarketCap, which we both agree that is a bad metric and maybe a toxic actor in this environment, but it's useful. Yeah, not, not only that, but I think the, 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 the metric of market cap is also um, you know, not very useful. But nevertheless, you look at coin market cap and you have mm-hmm. this historic view to see which assets existed five years ago or when the website was launched. And you're mm-hmm. going to see peer coin, you're going to see name coin, you're going to see master coin and all these projects which no longer have support or mm-hmm. have been abandoned for a long time. And I believe that five years from now, we're going to see many projects like I don't want to speculate on names, but maybe something like NEM, maybe something like NEO and EOS and all these projects which have a lot of money, have raised a lot of money for my CEOs and sustain themselves at the top according to how much they own right now. And they Mm -hmm. try to attract many more investors to their marketing campaigns. But their approach is not really sustainable and they don't provide anything of value at the end of the day. So I, I guess they're going to disappear and we're going to see maybe a new wave of entrance in this space. Or maybe we are going to see a greater agreement that we have like three or five legitimate projects which actually have a viable long-term plan. There will always be more. There will always be more just because of entropy. There will, there's incentives exist. People will create new projects. It's so easy to issue tokens. It's easy to fork a network and, and fork the UTXO set, airdrop those tokens. I, I, I just don't see it. Um, there may be consolidation. Like the, the, the most important networks become more important, but there will always be. I think it's just going to be more and more. Just It's just entropy. I just, I, the, the, there's only 
there's a small number of more ordered states, orderly states, and there's a large number of disorderly states. And by the way, you mentioned them. They're not that well capitalized anymore. There was a news story not so long ago that their foundations run out of money. So I guess that's the problem when you rely on these kind of centralized command and control structures that, you know, you require money for marketing, to pay for conferences, to go and pump the price, to get people excited about your thing. And, you know, maybe that's the, the, the feature and the, you know, the, one of the greatest features of Bitcoin is there is no marketing team. There is no, I mean, there is a foundation or two, but they're not real. It's not intrinsic to the network. There's no leader. There's no, um, you know, there's none of those kind of uh, endogenous central points of single points of failure, you could say. Anyway, in regards to my statement before this, I was about to conclude that no matter which projects go away and which ones get created along the way, we are always going to have Bitcoin. And that's why this podcast is called a Bitcoin Takeover. Mm -hmm. And I'm certain that in spite of all the market dynamics, we will always have Bitcoin. And the survival of this whole, what they call nowadays, blockchain industry relies on the success and sustainability of Bitcoin. And as long as it's still there, it's still functional, other projects and other people who speculate on this success are going to create much more and establish this framework through which they make money. But it's essential, mm -hmm. even in the case, I had this argument with a coworker from Crypto Insider who is much more on the side of permission blockchains and how blockchains can be used in fintech and in various mm -hmm. industries around the world. And he told me, you know, it's not all about Bitcoin. And I asked him, how are you going to market a blockchain to a business? Unless you point out to the original use of the blockchain and say, this is what they use in Bitcoin. And when you stop doing this, and if Bitcoin fails tomorrow, you're not going to have the same kind of enthusiasm from businesses which embrace mm. blockchain. They're going to say, oh, it's flawed. Why, why should I use this? It was proved to not be viable. They, it had these issues or these loopholes that people did not see for a long time and they were discovered yesterday or last week. And look, it doesn't function. I don't want mm -hmm. to deal with this. But as long as Bitcoin exists and is successful, then there is a lot of room for lots of side projects to be created and be experimented with. Yeah, I guess. But then, you know, the counterpoint to that, I totally agree with you, but the counterpoint is that uh, people always try to make analogies with what's come before. So um, there was the concept of the information superhighway in the 90s. There was uh, versus the internet, the close information superhighway, the corporate intranets uh, versus the open internet. Then before that, there was a VHS and Betamax, which was the videotape protocol war, you could say. And then there were the protocol wars around um, the standards of the internet from the 70s onwards. So maybe you'll see this thing where people will say, ah, oh, but Bitcoin was blockchain 1.0, it was Betamax, and our blockchain is blockchain 6.7, it's uh, DVDR or you know, Blu-ray or whatever you want to call it. So I, I just think that you, we're always going to see um, people uh, try to um, develop mutated strains along the, the lines of the Bitcoin blueprint, you know, borrowing sometimes more, sometimes less 
of the characteristics of the, you know, um, kind of um, elements of, 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 of the Bitcoin protocol on the network. Um, and even if, even if, like, you know, I don't even like to talk about it, but even if Bitcoin fails, even if there's catastrophic technical error, and if the cryptography breaks on the elliptic signature scheme or there's an inflation bug or, you know, something terrible happens, then there's the prospect that um, a mutated strain, like, you know, a fork from a from an earlier block, which changes, you know, the path of changes to a different timeline from a common history, that may be a way for the Bitcoin network to, to continue on. I know that sounds like almost like heresy in the in the present day um but we've got to we've got to bear in mind that bitcoin is still a grand experiment we're 10 years into a, a grand experiment and nothing is certain nothing success is not guaranteed um i mean we're all willing and hoping and working for bitcoin to succeed that's extremely important i think for not just for us in in the Bitcoin world, you know, they're interested in cryptocurrencies or, or what have you, or the kind of techno-libertarian uh, utopian fantasy or whatever you want to say. I think it's genuinely important for the for humanity that we have, that we can return to this sort of sense of um, of uh, an asset that you own that's not another, you know, counterparty's liability, that it's not some kind of financial Rube Goldberg machine that's that's built upon uh, promises to others and and obligations that come to you. Uh, I think that's really important for the for the for the whole planet. I agree. And tell me, how can you be contacted on Twitter as you shared all these interesting insights? And maybe that people will want to call you and invite you to conferences. And how can they do that? Sure. So, um, yeah, I spend all day, every day on Twitter. And um, so my thing is called Parallel Industries. So um, the first uh, 11 letters, I think, are Parallel IND. That's the handle on Twitter. And I've got a website, which is com, nice and short. And um, I pretty much put everything uh, through Twitter. You know, if it goes on my website or it goes on Hacker Noon or, or some other outlet in the mesh, um, things usually go to Twitter first. So... I mean, if you're interested in Bitcoin and you're not on Twitter, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> so if they don't have Twitter, how can they contact you? Do you use email? Sure. Yeah. yeah. They can, I mean, I have the same handle on, on Telegram as well. They can contact me there. I've got an email address. So if you go to the, the website, com, then you can find an email address to contact me there. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. So my name is Wasim Al-Sindi. There's only one person with that name. I think I'm the only Wasim that's really doing anything in Bitcoin as well. So um, I'm usually pretty easy to find. And if you look up, maybe you want to look up some of my projects. The names of those are a forkonomy, like astronomy, but with fork. I have a project that's called Reaching Everyone. I have a project that's called Token Space. I have another project called Thousand Dotes, which we didn't talk about today. Um, but yeah, those are all you know things that I you know I'm outputting material and giving talks about and, and stuff like that. And the last thing, if you don't mind me plugging it, and we're a kind of, you know, non-profit uh, you know, organization that's subsisting on donations. So if anybody's interested in uh, helping us uh, expand what we do and, and, and push things forwards, 
that would be really helpful. So feel free to get in touch. Okay, thank you very much. And this was very lengthy and consistent. <laughs> and people, people are going to find a lot of information to dig into. And maybe they're going to have a big revelation with the time machine theory about forts being parallel universes that we explore at this moment in time. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd congratulate people for getting to the end, I'd say. And there's a lot, and I hope this second season is going to be much more successful than the first one, but that's a lot of wishful thinking. Anyway, I thank you very much for your time. And I know that you work on a lot of projects, and it means a lot when you get to talk to somebody as busy as you are for three hours. That, that's something impressive. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's nice to unpack these uh, concepts and ideas in detail. And uh, also, you're a very thoughtful person, so it's, that's what I got from the first series. So it's just very nice to be able to to, to get into the weeds, into the nitty-gritty, and not be so worried about, um, you know, uh, hitting all the major talking points of the day or, or, or whatever. Oh, sure. I, I hate watching the news and commenting on it. Because I know that tomorrow it's not going to be as relevant. It just mm -hmm. passes. It's so consumable and easy to digest that it doesn't really leave you with the kind of intellectual input that makes you richer. I don't think people who read the news every day get too much out of it. It's much more useful to understand how the history of our societies and species actually went out and then you're going to see patterns and you're going to understand common events and news in a different way and you're not going to be as interested in maybe not on a daily basis mm -hmm. as interested in following what who said what and what they announced and stuff like that you're going to have a larger pers perspective on society and on your life as a whole mm -hmm. and that there's the point where we appreciate our time in this world to a greater extent and mm. quantify it in terms of how much can I do and how great can that activity of mine be in this limited amount of time that I have. One thing I'll say about the news is, like occasionally I'll pick up a newspaper, sometimes I'll watch um, the news on TV, and the news is an interesting tool for understanding what other people are hearing and, and listening and reading about. But I don't see much more in it than that, really. Yeah, I, I guess we're both the kind of isolated people who <laughs> like to work with their own projects and play with their toys. And maybe it's hard for the outside world to understand sometimes. But it's good that we have this kind of platform to get our ideas out. And part of the reason why I do the podcast is because on a daily basis, I have nobody to talk to about these topics. So it's mm -hmm. useful for me to get out some ideas, to test them with people who may or may not agree or may criticize me. I put myself out there and I'm open to criticism, but that's part of growing. And there is no mm -hmm. way to actually evolve unless you take these risks, which are not even vital. It's not like I'm threatening my own life by saying mm -hmm. something which might prove to be either stupid or unpopular. If you spend your life in the shadow, in your, you know, being scared of your own shadow, being worried that other people are going to think you're an idiot because you 
think this and you said that and you act this way. I mean, it doesn't seem like much of a way to live. Um, I'd rather be the stupidest person in the room than the person that everybody thinks is the smartest. I've been the stupidest person in quite a few Bitcoin conferences, especially early on in my adventures when I was going to um, my first few technical conferences. It was great. I really enjoyed just because all you can do is learn. Every interaction you'll have with somebody, you'll be learning something. Every talk, you'll learn something from. So, um, you know, if we're going to sign off with a kind of positive message, I'd just say to people, be curious, open your minds to, to different ideas and don't be afraid of what other people are going to think if you think, say this or you uh, have this line of thought. Just explore them all. Life is an experiment as well. Sure. And that's a very positive thought to end this. So thank you very much once again, Wasim. Did I pronounce that well? Wasim? Yeah, close enough. Wasim, yeah, close enough. Okay. Close enough. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for your time as well, Vlad. I really appreciate it. And I think that you're going to have a, uh, a good second season. I'm sure that once the first season has, has been disseminated, uh, people will find it. You know how the internet works. It's this gigantic repository. People will find it. People will share it. People will talk about it. And so um, from there, the, you know, you plant the seed and from there, the flower blooms. Yeah, sir. And the topics are not, you know, urgent. They're not used to be mm -hmm. consumed within a week and then they become irrelevant. I guess that mm -hmm. this kind of stuff can be discussed five years from now and we might stumble upon the same problems and the same issues. And I hope that people who will be adopting Bitcoin in the future will find this and say, you know, these people back in 2019 were not much different and did not have different issues from what we're having right now. And that's, that's something that I like to think about when I do this podcast, that we discuss matters which will not get solved tomorrow or within a week. Mm -hmm. Maybe that there the are same time, all bits that are mm -hmm. unimportant in the larger scheme. Mm -hmm. The main ideas will still be there and people will still be asking what Bitcoin does to world politics and which big power of the few that we have right now actually benefits most from these interactions and the usefulness of forks and how mm -hmm. altcoins can actually be viewed as research projects and experiments for different models of governance. Yeah, at the very least, time will give us more information, more more data, more experiments. Um, so, and then you know, events will will unfold and play out. So, all of the th many of the things we've spoken about, we've been speculating quite openly about you know possible futures of, of various various things. So, as you know, if somebody finds this in five years' time, maybe they'll treat it like a, a, a time capsule. That uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, if you used to do this when, we, when you were young, when I was at school, uh, we used to bury things in the field for people from the future to find. So maybe these podcasts will be a bit like that, kind of a kind of a simulacrum, a digital abstraction of a, of a time capsule. I like to think that too, but that that's a bit optimistic. But let's hope that. <laughs> you know. But if you, can't, if you can't be optimistic, then uh, what can you be? Analytical. <laughs> Real, yeah, realistic, realistic yeah. <laughs> so maybe we're Bitcoin realists I don't know I don't want to define myself because I, mm -hmm. I hate these labels 
And you can mm-hmm. say, oh, you're a contrarian, but I can be a contrarian to a contrarian. So well, I don't know. Mm. I try to avoid labels. Bitcoiner. I think big, yeah, Bitcoiner is my favorite term because it's, what does it mean? It's just a, per, a person of Bitcoin. There's no kind of identity attached to that. Yeah, a lot of people try to call themselves maximalists or whatever. They try to invent these terms to distance distance themselves from other people and give themselves or try to adhere to certain values. But I, I find that stupid because at the end of the day, there is just 1% of arguments on which they mm-hmm. do not agree. And they should not try to create small tribes according to that 1% mm-hmm. and their different interpretations on it. But whatever, mm-hmm. I'm We're just human. some people watch yeah. with their time. Yeah. That's what humans do. I mean, um, you know, Bitcoin doesn't care. Doesn't care about your political ideology. Doesn't care about which currency you've got in your pocket. Doesn't care about which country or city or which car you drive. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. Yeah, and it will be here for a long time for us to observe. And that's yeah. something which gets me excited. Yeah, so I can't, I can't wait um, to to watch, uh, just to keep watching and to keep participating and keep discussing. Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you in a conference in Romania, maybe. Mm, yes, um, the, there is apparently one coming up later in the year. And there should be some news to share about that quite soon. I hope I get to attend it. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you there then, Vlad. Okay. So we'll talk until then. It's not like until sure. whenever that conference takes place, we're not going to interact. But whenever this season gets out, I'm going to send out to you a link. And as you know, I have this model. If anybody wants to donate any BTC, and by the way, that's the only type of currency mm-hmm. that I will be accepting for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't want to start a Patreon. I thought about it, but really, that defeats the purpose. Mm-hmm. The Bitcoin takeover, it's Bitcoin only. And if mm-hmm. anyone donates anything, 50% of the donation is going to get to the guest or a charity of their choice. That's the model here. Great. Well, I would probably put it towards uh, reaching everyone to this project where we're trying to develop uh, strategies, mitigations, and tools for, for, the, for the dispossessed. Sounds interesting, but th- mm-hmm. that's your affair. It's like I give you fifty percent, and I-, I don't care what you do with it after that. That's the point. Well, that's, 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 yeah, sure. Well, that's where that's where it's going. I mean, um, the the most interesting thing we've been looking at recently, probably we'll do some hackathons in this over the summer, is uh, sending data over sound waves. That's the that's my newest uh, fascination. So I'd probably put it into doing doing a little bit more work on that. Okay, Mr. Polymath. (laughs) (laughs) Or Renaissance Man. Dr. Dr. Polymath, actually. (laughs) Okay. Very reverential. Uh, I'm joking. joking. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Vlad. I really uh, appreciate the conversation. It was super interesting. Likewise. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.